Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I return with another two-and-a-half-hour chat stravaganza about topics big and small, hypothetical and concrete, although, weirdly, we do not talk at all about the comic book concrete, so... We do, however, discuss the first issue of Metal by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, My Pretty Vampire by Katie Skelly, The Doomsday Clock, The Ballad of Halo Jones, Spider-Gwen issue 23 by Hannah Blumenreich and Jordan Gibson, The Unbelievable Gwenpool by Christopher Hastings and Guri Hiru, Ten Dead Comedians by Fred Van Linty, and much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Leave us comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan. Hello. Hi there. Hi there, listeners. This is genuine. Is it third or fourth time we've tried this? Yeah, this is the third time, I think, right? So. Yeah, te- technical difficulties. And for once... All on my side. Well, as far as we know, I mean, we never really know, right? Like, it just... we wow, have... Well, I'm going to say, at least the first call was me with the shitty headset. Oh, that is true. That is true. That first time was you, the second time we're thinking maybe had the router reboot. But I have to say, the, the airport that I have running on my desk that helps extend the Wi-Fi down through our crazy-ass apartment, that thing is so hot, I probably could cook an egg on it. So... That's, so that's where we just were with the call that no one will hear, which is we were talking about the weather in San Francisco, because didn't you have like 106 degree temperatures or something? Yeah, we did, and it was nightmarish. So, uh, I, okay. I, mean, I, I can't imagine that, because I used to live there, but mm-hmm. one of the things that we used to joke about when we moved up here was San Francisco doesn't really have weather. Right. And part of that is, it doesn't really get hot, hot. Mm-hmm. Like, it gets hot, but hot in the guess i better leave the window open tonight right heat never 106 degrees yes yeah no exactly so so for our apartment like the majority of places in san francisco it's a little bit different in the east bay for example but like san francisco and sort of heading down south along the coast along the coastal places there's no real such thing as air conditioning and there's really not a lot of insulation either so yes you know so in this apartment that we're in which is a building that is over 100 years old uh the first day of a heat wave is okay because the coolness actually stays in our apartment but it yeah. more or less burns off. So anything longer than that, we're in trouble. And technically, the first day of the heat wave was Thursday when it was in the 80s, right? So Friday, I was at my day job in the building that was air-conditioned, didn't really feel it at all. But then I came home at, uh, you know, and I, I even, I think I left work at about 545 uh in the evening and I stepped outside and it was still 94 degrees and I came into the apartment and it was a boiler. It was such an absurd boiler that that night I think I only slept like about four hours and the only way I was able to was at a certain point at about 1 a.m. I woke up and uh, well I say woke up I actually wasn't sleeping. I got up 
I took a super large tea towel that we had, I soaked it in cold water, and I slept with that on top of me. I had to actually have a wet sheet in order to be Did able you to have cool down to sleep. Yeah, we have well, we have one fan that we have blowing that more or less. But also, I guess that it's still like ninety six degrees, and so all you're doing is moving hot air. Around. Yeah, well, see, that's it, and, and that was the thing that was insane. Is we had our window wide open, and there was there was not there wasn't even an inch of a breeze, you know. Yeah. So, so that that was grueling, and we were both up. I think I was up at like five thirty yesterday morning, maybe six a.m. Oh, and, and um, oh man so and then and then that day which saturday which was only quote unquote only supposed to get up to 85 this there's i think there's a high pressure front and then on top of which because of all the various fires going around on around us um the smoke has kind of helped seal in the high pressure front so mm-hmm. So the day just skyrocketed. So we went up over a hundred degrees for Saturday as well, which it was not, we were not expecting. And so last night was also hell. I mean, the advantage was that I had, um, I, I knew that I started off, I went to bed with the wet tea towel on me instead of having to get up in the middle of the night. But I had actually apparently gotten so dehydrated that I was like, nauseated and headachey and had trouble sleeping and eventually I think I got up at midnight and had literally had an, an entire what 20, 20 20 ounces a 20 ounce contigo of water and some fruit just so that I could try and get back to sleep and again yeah. we we were yeah, up that's... at 6 a.m. so yeah yeah so you're having a great time is what you're yeah, saying I, I, I yeah. don't want to make you feel worse mm-hmm but you know how you're coming to Portland this week? Oh, I checked. I checked and I wept. I wept blood, Graham McMillan. So, uh, because, yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, well, as, first of all, when did you check? Because the temperatures have dropped dramatically over the forecast, for the forecast over the last couple of days. Yes, I checked, I checked back when it looked like Tuesday was going to be about 106 degrees and now it's dropped. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, or it, I, that one does, Depend what forecast you look for. Like, there's still some that are saying like 102, 103. Yeah. But Wednesday when you arrive was earlier on this week supposed to be like 100 degrees, and now it's down to like 92 or something. Yeah. Which like, don't get wrong, it's still really hot, but it's much better than 100. But it's also raining. It's all they're also yeah. forecasting rain and like yeah. 87 degree weather. So yeah. it's going to be a weird one. But on the plus side, you're staying places that will have air conditioning. I don't know. We, Edie and I were actually knocking that back and forth. Um, I don't think they have air conditioning at the Kennedy School. I would be really surprised if they don't, Jeff. Okay. I would be really, really surprised. I don't think there's going to be a hotel that will have nothing to keep you cool. Uh, especially because this summer, like, you're like, oh, 85 degrees, that's terrible. That's pretty much been, like, a low point. Right. For the last like month and a half, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I'm sure there's something that they're going to have to, to keep you cool at night. Well, there's something, but I don't think that it's full on air conditioning because um, just because I've stayed there a couple of times, and but we'll see, we'll see. I think I think what they have is they've got an additional sort of hot cold unit that you can plug in. You know, because when I was there last time in Portland, it was kind of the winter and it was cold at night. 
and they had rolled out this little, t- you know, those sort of tall HVAC looking motherfuckers that's just, yeah. that looks like half the buildings in San Francisco now. Um, they had one of those that you could plug in for heat. And I think, I think it also has a cool air option, but in the sense of, you know, <laughs> when, when Edie and I would go and visit, uh, my mother-in-law in Reno and we would stay in a hotel, like that's air conditioning. You know what I mean? So like Kennedy School. <laughs> I love it. I love how you were now turning into a snob. No, I've had real air conditioning. Well, I, well, Graham, this is the, the you have to understand. I am beyond cranky because of the ongoing nightmare that this heat has been. Because honestly, for the most part, I tend to do pretty well in the heat as long as I can cool off at night. But if I cannot cool off at night and I can't sleep, then I just turn into the world's crankiest crank. So yes, I will absolutely, as someone who stayed at the Kennedy School several times, uh, I, I will say I, looking, I love them. I'm looking right now, them. and it's it's central and not uh, controllable in your room. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that I, I, I'm looking right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've got venti you, things, and there's a fan by... over the bed. Oh, I, I appreciate that, Graham. <laughs> that is very kind of you. <laughs> That's, that's not patronizing and dismissive at all. <laughs> that's all right. Earlier on, I was tempted to be even worse when you're like, oh, it's 85. And I was like, you motherfucker. I'm from Scotland and I've been dealing with 100 degree weather Dude, for the last two weeks. You know what? And I always show sympathy for you, Graham. Every time. You've been up there for like six years in your beautiful mansion like house. Ridiculous? Oh my God. And every time I'm like, Graham, that's terrible. Oh, I know you're in your office. It's so bad. Whereas I'm like, you're like, Jeff Lester, how are you? You must be dying. And I'm like, I am dying. Oh, what's wrong with you, Jeff? What's wrong? Oh, my God. <laughs> dying. Oh, such dramatic language. You know, it's like you were you were waiting to pounce, Graham. Just waiting. I can tell you're a pouncer from way back. First of all, I'm sorry I'm not appropriately sympathetic. Secondly, I love that you made me sound a bit like Snugglepuss. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, exit stage left. Uh, yeah, so, um. Air conditioner stage left. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, so rather than listen to me complain about this stuff, let's listen to me complain about comics or not. Um, or, I well, mean, I was secretly hoping mm-hmm. that it was so warm on Friday or Saturday that you thought, fuck it, I'm going to see Inhumans at the IMAX. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, no. I, in fact, one of the if things... If anything could make someone go and see the humans, I figured the possibility of it being air-conditioned... You know what, Graham? Might I... actually be up there. I'm, I'm only quasi-joking. Well, no, no. I get it. And frankly, if we lived like 20 or 30 years ago when it was like, you know, you when you lived in a one-theater town... But, I mean, the fact is, like, any Inhumans IMAX theater is going to be, like, in a Showing multiplex... better films... It, or any other film. You know what I mean? Like, but Jeff, it's humans and it's, come on, you've sat through, you went, sat through all of Defenders. You know? You, you, you like to okay. submit yourself okay. to the torture. All right. that is. Okay, 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 well, Snagglepuss, riddle me this. I told you Defenders was bad and then you went and sat through it. No, I only, I know, I literally went from episode uh, three, four to episode tw- eight or twelve or whatever the last one is. Oh my god, so you just skipped to the end? I just skipped right to the last episode. Oh, well that's smart, because God knows that's the only thing that had anything. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I said this on Twitter, which is how you know that I skipped the last episode. But the musical choices in that episode are beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Everything else about that episode is a steaming pile of shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, staggeringly so. Mm-hmm. But music is so wonderfully bad. And during the fight scene where they put the Wu-Tang track on. Yes. But they put it on really quietly. Yeah. It's like, so killed me. I mean, literally killed me. It was like, here's the question, it's like, dun da 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 And then out of nowhere, Wu-Tang, and it's like someone has turned the volume down. Like, it, it, it's like, almost as, yeah, it's almost as if like, one of the hand what, had been listening to it on their Sony Discman. And, or, and it's, it, or it had been playing in the background when they shot it, and they forgot to dub over. Yeah. And they're like, it'll be fine. Because it honestly sounds like if everything else is playing at, like, volume level 10... The Wu-Tang honestly sounds like it's a volume six. Yep. It's super weird. And then they're like, we're not even going to get to the end of the Wu-Tang track, though. We're just going to go back to the the orchestral as as soon as whatever the dramatic thing is. But they they do the the sting. They do the no instead. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so bad. It was beautifully bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that is true, Graham. You're absolutely right. (laughs) That is the only aspect of the show in which the word beautifully is going to pop up before the bad. (laughs) I I have to say, episodes three and four, as I said last time, are not good. Mm -hmm. I genuinely was not prepared for how everyone seems to be like, I'm not even doing half-ass anymore. I'm I'm giving this a quarter-ass. And just hoping that we all get out of this alive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by this last episode. Yeah. It's just stunning that everyone seems to have given up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, I think, I think, so. well, cause I think there's a range, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's a godforsaken mess. It, it, and for a variety of reasons, but I mean, let's face it, it's just the material is shit. So I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's amazing. It, it, the script is, Really, genuinely, impressively bad, and actually got me to thinking. And I have a few questions I want to ask you out of nowhere mm-hmm. this week, Jeff. Okay. Um, but one of them is Defenders is eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Why, when Marvel has like this, or for that matter, I think Inhumans is only eight episodes too. Mm-hmm. Why do they not go the British route, or for that matter, even the the premium cable route of having one writer for all the episodes? Uh, I'm pretty sure that that would be come out with a a better product because it could just be like everything's the same level of shit, right? But it would be more coherent. Um, uh, the, well, the I would say that the answer is, and I could be very mistaken, is that for the most part, unless there is a super driven writer, like the the Brits basically will write an entire season but they will that season might be two years in between the time that it comes out and sure. from the previous yeah, yeah. season yeah and and marvel's just not building you know this deal was inked with kind of this deal of i think they actually thought that they were going to have enough time to to kind of speed this through and and get to it and they and they just don't i think honestly the you think show. literally got to oh shit we're supposed to be shooting defenders next week yeah basically and we barely had time to break the writers room kind of deal like I think I think they are so far behind I don't think that they're used to this kind of schedule at all um, frankly I think I think it's I think I think it's argue arguably someone could say that that would be a challenge for 
a bunch of them. I also think that, un- and I could be wrong here, is is that I think that it could be argued that Defenders was building had to had to wait until the other shows were structured enough to be able to know where and how to pick up those threads. And I mean, and part of it is is like Jeff Loeb is running it, and come on, Jeff Loeb is kind of a fuck off, you know? Like, sure, I, but I, I no, I, I no. Don't so to, I, mean, I genuinely don't want to defend Jeff Loeb here, but part of me is also I wonder how much Jeff Loeb is actually involved in like the day to day of these oh, shows. Oh, Jeff Jeff Loeb is doing a uh, is doing a fucking shit ton i mean they push him in front of there and honestly to me sure, the but, but the, de- the declination the of quality is actually to me kind of a sign that Loeb is involved i think i think in fact i could be wrong but but uh i think that jessica jones is actually the show that had sort of the most positive reaction and might have been the show that had the most um, significant script, script contributions by the showrunner. Like, I think Melissa Rosenberg wrote a huge chunk of those episodes. And I mean, and that's the other thing. We're also, uh, the American system is very much like people write, you know, you break the story, then someone else writes the story, you know, writes the script, and then the showrunner rewrites the script. Yeah. And, and so it's very traditional. It wasn't, that's why if you look at, um, Mad Men, you know, so many of the scripts have Matthew Weiner's name on it, and it's not really like Matthew Weiner did anything different from most of the other shows. Uh, he and Sorkin just insisted that because they are the people who, you know, are running the show and do the la- the, the amount of rewriting they do makes it that their name goes on it. But there, but there's, you know, which is entirely um, controversial. For both of them, as you know, uh, both Wiener and Sorkin have, have had um, disputes with their writers on their writer teams for the credit that they are taking or, or taking too much of. So, um, so, so here's a related question, yeah. and this is more. Uh, this isn't me looking for you to give me the answer because mm-hmm. I think we both know the answer, and I think the answer is what you just talked about. But it's more a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Why? the Marvel Netflix shows I feel in particular hew so closely to network television in terms of format when on Netflix episodes can be whatever length they, they are. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't have to have a an hour long episode because a lot of the the Marvel shows I think mm-hmm. are filled with filler in order to make an episode length. Yes. Yeah. And, and could be great if like great as a misnomer could be better if you like caught 15 minutes of it. Well, this is actually a really interesting question because I think maybe they will, it's possible they will change that. But, um, I, I think, uh, the two things that I would say is, is that it, it's, it's one part habit to one part, um, uh, at least early business decisions. Cause my understanding when this came up with, uh, rested development, which was one of Netflix's first original series. Um, it was the the time beats and even the even the choices to censor. Ha- I, my understanding was it had a lot to do with the idea that Netflix was actually going to sell this stuff um, internationally and not necessarily have it end up on Netflix. That. I think, and I could entirely be wrong on that, but that certainly changed even by the time that the, the 
first Daredevil show hit because that's when you start seeing um, the shows being released with worldwide translation, you know, so mm-hmm. that you can turn on any number of, of language options because they're rolling out more or less worldwide at the same time. I think Netflix originally looked at a traditional distribution model, which was that they were going to pay for the sort of the exclusive North American rights. And then they would actually be the people that would be getting a huge chunk because they'd funded it to like license those rights internationally to end up on other channels and other networks. But I think that changed also sort of in the same way that you can hear comic book writers complain when you cut like, you know, cut a script from like 20 pages to 18 pages. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, TV writers who the idea, you know, if you look at someone like, if you follow John Rogers on Twitter, I don't know if he still does this as much, but, you know, he used to talk a lot about structure and craft and talk about, you know, for example, um, changing from a three art, uh, three arc structure on a TV script to a five art, art. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But, but also that's also very much tightly tied to the time situation. Which sure. I think may be part of the reason why as commercials got longer, TV theme songs ended up getting, you know, basically axed in favor well, yeah. of, you know, the, the more, credits. the more, yeah, the more commercials, the first thing to go was the, was the credits yeah. and the end credits first, then the opening credits. Right. Cause you'd have your, your scenes playing over the credits or your credits playing over the final scenes. Right. For right, a while, right, remember? Right. Yeah, that's but, true. But like, but on Netflix, I, I don't want to say like that doesn't matter because I'm sure Netflix does have an eye on like a secondary market, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I just it feels and the Defenders episodes I, and that last episode in particular. Oh yeah, it honestly, felt at times they were like, okay, let's show Colleen fighting the hand guy for you know two minutes because we're two minutes under in this episode, oh, and it's like you would you would literally no- lose nothing and gain a lot. By cutting the the fat from the show, but but it's all there. We'll see. That's it. The part of the problem with I mean, the Defenders is a really tough one to look at because, ironically, the Defenders is indefensible. Uh, it, it's just it's 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 all filler. I'm not kidding. It's the entire it, eight it's, episodes it's, is all filler. It's kind of staggering. And yeah. also, I think you said this last week, but now that I've seen the final episode, mm-hmm. the fight scene at the end, mm-hmm. like when they're all underground. It's so bad. It's horrible. It's I mean, horrible. amazingly badly done. Mm-hmm. And, and to the point where you're like, they really must have been running out of time. Yeah. There's no other way that they could have been like, this is fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, they. I, 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 I really feel like the whole thing was just just a god awful mess. That being said, I I think that even by the standards of a god awful mess, it. It seemed really unambitious. And again, that could just be time, you know, the, the amount of time that they had to turn stuff around. But I mean, uh, if only you'd seen some of the others, it is, oh, it, what a, what an extraordinary show. But, but it has to be said, finishing that last episode, I, I was like, I have no desire to go back and see what I missed. Right. Because, yeah. No, because, I got it. Yeah. Because you could totally tell. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cause it, and actually, Having watched episodes three, four, and eight mm-hmm. of Defenders, one thing that's common through all of them, and I'm sure it's common through the rest of the show, 
is how bad their episode opens are. Mm-hmm. Like how weirdly slow, expositionary, even though it's fucking Netflix, you know that someone is binging it. You well, know, people are not coming back in yeah. after a week. And yet each episode starts with someone being like, so let's go over the plan one more time. Or what was that? I'll just explain it. Yeah. No, it, 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 it it's yeah. literally just there to kill time. There's times where it's just people walking from place to place. Like, um, it's, it's, it's like low budget movie making. Like, uh, I remember watching, um, John Carpenter's commentary on something like, uh, I don't remember if it was Halloween or like Assault on uh, Precinct 13, which is an amazing movie. But, you know, he's an incredibly candid filmmaker and he's like, okay, well, you know, the credits start. He's like, okay, so you go to black, which is good. You don't have to have any film during this period where you're showing your credits, you know, so that saves you a lot of money right there. And, you know, it's very much, at least for Carpenter, it was, it was the idea of the, the budget, but I, I do think maybe it's budget or time or both, but the, but just the amount of time where people are walking from one thing to another, I'm like, there's no point. You don't need to show this. And they really didn't. They, they, the majority of that show is honest to God. We have eight hours of time. We literally only had time to put together like about 45 minutes of scene, you know, and then we're doing a first pass on, on various amounts of just crazy fillerish shit. It's, oh, it's, it's, it, it really was. It was one of those, it, it sort of, and it's funny because, um, I, you, uh, you know, and the listeners know, and I know that you, Graham McMillan, are not a Game of Thrones, uh, watcher, viewer. No, um, not at all. And one of and the things. And you are, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that was really funny about this season is how incredibly sped up it felt in part because they only have like 13, you know, they had seven episodes this season. I think they're only going to have six next, uh, season. And, all of a sudden, the the first set of seasons, particularly the last two, had a lot of, like, let's maneuver people into place. And admittedly, with Game of Thrones, there was a big sense of trying to create this sense of world and having people... The idea was you would have people leave for things and then show up at the next episode or whatever. And here you had people just having to jet around from different parts of the map, like back and forth. And so everyone, like there's those people, there's a lot of the shut up nerds on Twitter complaining about the people, uh, uh, who, who watch the show and complain about how people somehow managed to get from one hemisphere of this globe to the other in what feels like half an hour. And well, I, as someone who doesn't watch the show, Watching the backlash to the season and especially the last couple of episodes mm-hmm. has been fascinating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because, I mean, don't get me wrong, but the, there has been a slow backlash to Game of Thrones for a couple of years at least. Yeah. But seeing people who, as recently as the beginning of this season, were all about, you know, this is one of the greatest shows that's ever happened, you know, that there's never been fancy in this scale, they've done it right – suddenly turn around by the end of the season and be like, this show has betrayed me. This show... <laughs> I know, I've seen like, I've right. seen people genuinely say yeah. that. No, absolutely. absolutely. And, and it's, it's really been interesting to see people and all of the different reasons people have. Because no one can just say, this show isn't good anymore. Well, Everyone is like, and here's why I think that is. Right, right. And it's been fascinating to see as someone who doesn't watch the show. 
as honestly, I thought this season was pretty decent. You know, like it had a lot of stuff that I liked. It had some good moments. It wasn't necessarily super. It wasn't, you know, top season ever kind of thing, but it was, I thought it was actually pretty decent, probably better than last season overall. Um, but, but the thing that's funny is, is like, yeah, suddenly there's lots of finger pointing, but, but there is that idea of, um, sometimes if you've got like the, the, the turning, the turning of the plot, you know, you've got to have so-and-so be in place and then they have to wait until it's their time to move forward and Game of Thrones, the, the early seasons actually did a really lovely job of, well, one of the things that Martin did that, that the show followed that I thought was realized in retrospect was pretty much genius is, is that he would move a character into place and then more or less introduce new characters, you know, and he just kept doing that and doing that. And then probably to the detriment. And of course I haven't followed the books, but at some point he's got a volume that is so much backstory that people are like, what, wait, what, you're not even moving the pieces. You're not even move, put introducing new pieces or moving pieces forward. What the hell are you doing? Uh, but in Game of Thrones, one, I think the reason why people really lost their shit this season in some ways is, is because the, the showrunners more or less cheated on the rules that they set up. And to me, some of those rules that they set up were kind of in their own way cheats, you know, kind of like, oh, and this is why this doesn't happen yet because of this or you know, so-and-so rides off on a horse. You're not going to see them for, a, you know, four episodes in the season, but we're actually going to distract you because of this, you know? And what I find fascinating about the Defenders, especially following on the heels of Luke Cage, which I did not like very much, uh, but which I did think was structured incredibly ambitiously. And Defenders is, is, I mean... I thought the second season of Daredevil was terrible and it's pretty much by the same team. It's, it is, it's not like, I really was like, why can't you just set one set of characters? Why couldn't you even do the stuff that you were doing with the, with Electra and have her do her big move in the first four episodes and then have her do this and then have that flip? Like just so many ways that would have been, easy to create a sense of forward movement but they but what and that's the thing that's problematic about the defenders is is that a lot of what they did was they figured out ways to they half acidly were like okay we're mimicking what's happening with the that other marvel shows did you know very much like the stuff the first season of daredevil again you made fun of me and i understand but it really, at least as far as pacing goes, place it, having so much focus on Wilson Fisk and Wilson Fisk's life um, really ends up adding a really interesting edge to that first season. And so when they more or less go about trying to rip that off with the Defenders, but give you no character there, it's kind of like... <laughs> For, again, I've only seen three episodes. So I've seen less than half the series. Yeah. But what has been interesting to me is how they managed to make every idea as least possibly interesting as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they really are like, okay, we've got this idea. How can we do this in the worst way imaginable? Yeah, 
Well, because, because it is the, how, you know, ideas usually seem charming the more sparkle and wit and delight, and that usually requires a certain deftness. And when you're actual, deftness, I should say, in case that doesn't come out right. Um, and when your whole goal is literally to kill times, you know, like just as many scenes as possible, just pad everything out because you've got, an eight episode commitment and you literally don't have the time or the wherewithal or whatever else is happening that you can't put it together in that period of time. Um, but I think also there's a lot to be said for, um, I don't know. I mean, just, just, just shittiness. I mean, you know, I don't, I think first season of daredevil, I don't know if they were really planning on do, you know, the second season of daredevil that they threw in there. I don't necessarily know if that was planned. It was just like, well, this is such a huge hit. Let's strike while this is hot. It's not surprising that, like, we've heard so little about the next season of Jessica Jones and the Luke Cage stuff is, you know, sort of crawling around in the background. Yeah? Did you... you No, I was going to say that the the second season of Daredevil, I remember being surprised when they announced it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Because I seem to remember the original announcement was, we'll do the first season of all these shows. Yep, exactly. And then all of a sudden they're like, Daredevil was a hit! Yeah, exactly. You guys doing a second season. And I, I remember, maybe you, maybe others, but I definitely remember people being like, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Yeah, yep, very much so. Yeah. And and true true to form, it turned out to be kind of a bad idea. And what's weird is, again, they just had that kind of weird... Um, Things were just multiplying underneath them. Then in the second season of Daredevil, there's such a strong, um, it's such a strong launching pad for the Punisher. And then they're often running with that because the response was super positive. And, and it, it just, it really was. There was a lot of like, oh, this that looks like there's going to be a golden egg coming out of this goose's ass. Let's grab it, you know? And I, it, it, and so I honestly think if they maybe if they hadn't done a second season of Daredevil but had put that effort into creating a good season of the Defenders, I think that would have helped them a lot. Now the first season of Daredevil doesn't even have Elektra in it, I don't as I recall. Nope. So you nope. know Elektra and Punisher were both editions for the second season of Daredevil. Exactly. So I think I think that there was a lot with um that you know, that they were like, well, we got to do this here. I don't know. Well, I mean, again. I, I actually wonder how much of their, how much of uh, Defenders rather was in place. Yeah. Because so much of it builds off of Daredevil season two and yeah. Iron Fist. Yeah. Iron Fist is huge, which was right before. And what's weird is, is that whereas the stuff Jessica Jones has, om- has characters in it, but she, there's nothing going on there. There's nothing going on there that's really a carryover thread from her show. And the stuff with Luke Cage is kind of like somebody who watched, you know, the last two episodes of that series and was like, oh, okay, here's a, what are we, and, and in both cases, it really shows. There's a lot of like, what are we going to have them talk about? Now, first season of Daredevil, there's, um, Madame Gao or whatever, you know, she's peddling heroin with, the steel serpent logo on it. So mm-hmm. I think that they already had the framework of daredevil to iron fist to the hand. Um, and then they weren't sure how they were going to bring in Jessica Jones and Luke Cage into that. And it's quite possible that the 
to the extent that people like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, that it had a lot to do with them being kind of their own things. Like Jessica Jones is like, I'm going to, we'll introduce Luke Cage and we'll, we'll launch that. And then, but they're both kind of their own things, which I think is to their advantage. I don't necessarily know that the continuity stuff was that great. Again, especially when you get Iron Fist in there. And it's interesting because a lot of people really, really bitch about Finn Jones and how terrible he is. And he's not great. Part of me is like, yeah, they needed someone better. But but I'm just fascinated to the extent to which... I, I, I'm so surprised that Marvel TV was like... And, and perhaps it's not surprising that a bunch of white guys are like, oh yeah, we're going to do this whole, so the defenders are going to be, you know, a very wide range of diversity. But of course, it's the stories of these two white guys that are really going to, that's really going to carry the whole heft of the season, you know? Yeah. And, and the, the extent to which they tried to course correct for that with, I don't know, some of the stuff with Colleen Wing and her, you know, mentor the evil celebrity hairdresser to the stars it just it just doesn't it just didn't it it's clear how tacked on that is because like you said there's two minutes of that fight that felt like nothing and there's two minutes of that fight where it's literally taking place behind some pipes while like misty's on the phone again also what misty's arm getting cut off is was came across as amazingly gratuitous didn't it well, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, like entirely unnecessary in that she gets her arm cut off. She pretty much like walks out and's like, "Oh my arm! Oh shit!" Well, then she's in hospital and she's like, "I feel like I have an arm." And I was like, "Oh, really? Yeah. You couldn't like? Oh, I hate, I hated that beat so much yeah. because so little time was paid to it. And and also another reason I hated it was I'd seen the. Uh, Luke Cage season two teaser image before I saw the final episode. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm and, just, and have you seen that? Yeah, uh, I saw, I didn't see it before. I just saw it a few days ago on Twitter. Yeah. And, I, I, well, I think they released it significantly after the show. It's just, I only saw the last episode two days ago. Right. Oh, right. Well, then that would make sense. Yeah, exactly. I figured you were talking about your superpowers, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, that beat is, it's, I mean, that's the problem is, is that there's, there's ways in which, oh God, I just, I don't know. There's just so much that's exhausting about it. It's exhausting. It's exhausting how much they wasted Rosario Dawson. I don't know what they promised her at the beginning, but it could not have been the shit that they gave her at the end. It's terrible. I mean, even the stuff in Luke Cage, honestly, I thought was bad, but she had more to do than than here where it's just it's it it was it was awful it was awful it's it's the defenders really was it was like 40 percent fan service 40 percent lip service and then just 40 percent bullshit you know which okay the math doesn't add up i was gonna say come on you couldn't have just gone 20 percent last one you know i was but then i was like let's face it graham you even with what you watched it's 40 percent fan service it's twenty percent lip service, yeah, and it's forty percent bullshit. bullshit. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you for working those, I, those I, numbers I, with me. That bothered me. Also, I love that neither of us like Defenders. I've still not seen the entire show. I'm not going to, and we've now spent like two hours of a pod, of different podcasts talking about it. 
Yeah, it, I, I am a little, I was like, ah, but it's, it is that terrible. It's if we, if we scare one person away from wasting their life with it. That being said, <laughs> I would We love... said that by the fucking Star Bronze, and then Star, people are like, I want to read Star Bronze. What's that all about? Well, you and I were split the difference. I actually do, like I said in one of my tweets, I actually do want people to read Star Brand, uh, if they think they're into it, cause it's weird. I really appreciated Zach Soto being like, there's, you know, tweeting like, oh, there's I, something there. I saw there. his tweets from mm-hmm. yesterday and he was like, yeah, I, I really would be interested in, in doing something with this yeah. based on the ideas that you and I were talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The, the whole like, get it to a bunch of, bunch of indie minded guys, like, I think would be such a good mix. In part because I think there's a variety of influences and weirdnesses that, um, that I feel that modern creators are more comfortable bringing out of the material um although i would agree but i would also say modern non-marvel creators yes oh yeah yeah, no no exactly in fact uh this was going to be my segue to talking about uh my pretty vampire by katie skelly uh that i read uh this week and uh really really quite enjoyed but what's fascinating to me is knowing that skelly is working uh, at least in my limited awareness of a whole set of um, different influences than me reading it being like, oh, this is this is great. This is just like, you know, it's my only complaint is it's a little too short, but it's kind of like a, a more risque werewolf by night, you know, it's like my pretty va- a my and I just so I really feel like part of me is like yeah I wish it'll never happen but like the new universe and a lot of the Marvel horror stuff get guy get creators that really aren't traditional Marvel creators and people who have been working on on a variety of you know again I don't know that there's a term for it but you know the this the stuff that we're seeing from Skelly or from Charles Foreman or Zach Soto or just a variety of people who are working on a variety of different influences you know it's really funny because something I was reading this week and this sounds like I'm going completely off topic but I'll bring it back is uh the alt what's it called the cataclysm the Ultimate's Last Stand, which is Josh Filkoff's and Brian Michael Bendis' bringing Galactus to the Ultimate Universe storyline, mm-hmm. which is terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on so many levels, terrible. So so terrible, in fact, that the final issue of the series features like the big showdown. The epilogue is it's Captain America's funeral, and I swear to God, I hadn't realized Captain America was dead. <laughs> Because it essentially is an afterthought. Oh, it wasn't something that happened before the event started? Did it happen no, no, in the no, course no. of the No, no, no. Captain America is in the event. Oh, okay. And at one point, he seems to, I guess, fly a plane into Galactus or something. Right. But they don't make a big thing about him being dead at all. <laughs> and then the epilogue, they're like, I can't believe Cap gave his life. And I was like, did he? Did <laughs> <laughs> he get dead? Wait, I, I, I missed that. Okay, I guess that happened. <laughs> But what it reminded me of, to, to sort of tie in with what we're talking about, is spinning out that, there was all new Ultimates. Mm-hmm. By, that had Michael Keith. Keith. Right. Mm-hmm. And in theory, that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But in practice, did that not just read like a reasonably good Ultimates comic to you? Well, A, 
I I have to admit I love I love Thief's work and I was like oh wait till this all piles up on Unlimited and as is my case got distracted with nine million other things so I don't I don't know for sure but at that point of course I think all due respect to Thief I think the problem is it's uh, the Ultimates were like a walking corpse like four times over. And like you said, the extent yeah. to which... By, by that point, the Ultimates had been a walking cup for like for three or four years. Exactly. And so, it had like multiple relaunches. Yeah, and I think that's it. I just feel like at that point... So for me, I kind of feel like, again, you know, I'll be honest. Again, reading My Pretty Vampire, one of the other things that I've been reading is uh, the Marvel... Because <laughs> I'm one of six people on the planet who has this, the uh, Werewolf by Night Marvel Omnibus. And kind of realizing, yeah, and realizing like just, I I guess I didn't realize, I'm like, I love Werewolf by Night. I mean, clearly I knew that because, you You know, the omnibus, omnibus, exactly. (laughs) And so I had the fond memories of all these issues, but like, I kind of came in during the very long run where it's Doug Monick or Mench, Doug Mench and uh, Don Perland drawing it, you know, and... Perlin, as you know, is not the sort of guy that, that, you know, he's got fans, but, you know, there's always kind of those slightly embarrassed fans that I guess I'm one of where I'm like, yeah, he's he's really uh, enjoyable. Uh, uh, his storytelling is always uh, clear, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But re- reading the first couple of issues, like I'm five issues in for to Werewolf by Night, and it's still Jerry fucking Conway and Mike Plug. And I'm just like, I love this shit. And of course, people know me ranting and raving. Like, I feel like Son of Satan was just such a um, missed opportunity in a way. I just feel like I just feel like there's just a ton of stuff when Marvel was just cranking out the IP at like a ferocious rate, where all this stuff was kind of weirdo, half baked stuff that that I feel like a lot of people like I think I think it's not surprising to me that Fief wasn't really able to resuscitate the ultimates but again because it had flatlined but if he was to turn around and create something that someone hadn't had a go at recently you know or that hadn't hit you know I mean that's the thing that's the other thing with the ultimates is, is if it had never been quote unquote good, but you know, for better or for worse, what um, Miller and Hitch did with the Ultimates, everything was going to end up kind of in its shadow, and and I don't know the extent to which, even if that's you know in the reader's mind, I guess. So well, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, you know, Bendis was writing. Thief's mm-hmm. Ultimates. He was, mm-hmm. Thief was just drawing, I think. I could be wrong. I oh think, no, wait. Yeah. I'm totally misremembering. Thief was writing. Yes, yeah, exactly. And who was drawing? Uh, it wasn't Marquez. It was, uh, um, I'm gonna have to look this up. You should look it up. Uh, all new Ultimates. I honestly, okay. Let's look at this, uh, it is, it was written by him, mm-hmm. drawn by Amilcar Pina? Pina? Hmm. Sure. Sure it was. And it lasted six issues, I guess. Yeah, see. I mean, that's... But it was also an entirely... No, it lasted 12 issues. Oh, it did it? Okay. There you go. Right. It was at least two trades, and that's where it makes sense. Um, yeah, it's it's funny, because I'm looking at the 
I'm looking at Thief's website and I'm looking at all his artwork for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> I, thought, I honestly thought he wrote and drew it. And, oh, I thought it was true. I honestly thought he drew it and Ben just wrote it, but I'm completely wrong. Wow. But, um, but in that case, it almost seems more disappointing to me that it was just such a run-of-the-mill book. Uh, but secondly, what I was going to say is I feel... Uh, there's something about reading the Katie Skelly book and being like, oh, imagine what she could do with with a Marvel book that feels very... Oh, yeah, no, that's gross. I mean, I and I'm yes, not saying that... like, oh, yeah, Katie Skelly, that work would have been awesome if it had just been Morbius the Living Vampire. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I'm sort of trying to connect the dots, I suppose, because it's kind of like reading My Pretty Vampire and then reading Essential Werewolf by Night and being like, oh, these are really similar. And like I said, I feel weird about that because Skelly's drawing from European exploitation movies and uh, comics to an extent. There's a super strong manga influence Um Skelly draws from all, all manner of, of things, yeah. which is what's are super fascinating. I always get a big French comics thing from her. Right. I, I don't know why. It feels like, in many ways, for me, she's drawing from a lot of the same influences as Brandon Graham, mm-hmm. but somehow it comes through purer hmm. in her work. Interesting. I, I can't really describe it more than that. It feels like Graham is, is doing more bastardization. Huh, that's so funny. Whereas to me, some of Skelly's stuff feels like it's drawing from manga work that has a strong European influence or a strong European focus. You know what I mean? So yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so so, but what's wonderful is, like you said, it's her own stuff. It and it is her own influences. I it would be no fun to see her on. Werewolf by Night, unless, you know, she was really given the reins and she really wanted to do it, because she's able in My Pretty Vampire to very much create something that part of the charm is is that you don't necessarily know from page to page what you're going to be looking at next, you know? And in that sense, her style is sort of the unifier to, to what she's sort of processing. And so that's that is really wonderful, but like I said, I think because we were talking about New Universe and Starbrand, it was it was very much that idea of like, yeah, every once in a while, um, it's so it can be hard as an older comic fan to just look at all this stuff, especially the stuff in Marvel that's just kind of you know laying by the wayside and being like, God, I just want to see some of this done. Like again, even in the Werewolf by Night stuff, where it's Conway and Plug, like. It looks beautiful, but I mean, you know, it's, it's Conway. That is, that is definitely a guy who, um, you know, focuses on stuff and you're like, yeah, just let's keep going deeper on that. And you're all but guaranteed that's never going to happen, you know? So, so there's always this potential that I, I feel and want, but at the same time, I'm aware, like, A, the way that Marvel treat I don't even like the way that Marvel treats their, you know, their creators at all. I wouldn't want to get anybody who's got their own talent and their own stuff going on involved in that sort of situation, unless they think that they can make it work for them in the long run, you know. Well, um, it, it's it's a funny thing because I think Marvel, much more than DC actually, has a lot of undiscovered gems there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because I think DC. Weirdly enough, for a publisher that's been around arguably longer, mm-hmm. uh, 
is much more willing to to revive shit. Yes, that that doesn't. Work. Whereas I think Marvel is a, is more likely to cast aside and be like, why don't we just do another Captain America series? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Right. People didn't buy Skull and Slayer, but what if we do Captain America team up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas DC would be like, okay, why don't we do Spanner's Galaxy? Spanner's Galaxy doesn't work. Sure. Let's do another Batman book. And then two weeks later, they're like, what if we do Spanner's Galaxy challenge? <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there, there is that level of, you know, you'd be like, where the fuck did that come from? I mean, this week coming out, I don't know if you know this, Jeff. Dastardly and Muttley by Garth Ennis is out this week. Oh, shit. No, I did not know that. Dastardly and Muttley by Garth Ennis. Mm. And if you were like, I never knew I wanted to read the origin of Dastardly and Muttley. Mm-hmm. Well, or we're he... in. Spoilers. Muttley is not a dog. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Then, then this is your comic, and also I think that you will really like it, Jack. I, I probably would. I probably would. Well, but I mean, like, or even a comparison is, and this is funny because I wanted to bring it up to poop on it. Um, first issue of Metal. I mean, comparing Metal to Secret Empire, God only knows where Metal's going to end up. But like, there is more time where Scott Snyder is is thinking, like, okay, here. Here's how I'm going to do Lady Blackhawk. Here's how I'm going to do the Challengers of the Unknown. And Secret Empire is like, okay, and here's how we're going to have Steve Rogers come back as Captain America. And you know what oh, I mean? Did, and it's did just you like, read? Did you read the last ep- the last issue of Secret Empire? No, I did not. Am holy, I wrong though? <laughs> no, but holy motherfucking shit! It's it's almost impressive. A how bad that entire series has been. Mm-hmm. But B how a series that was never good visibly took a turn for the worst in the last couple of issues. Mm-hmm. Like, really, obviously, apparently, mm-hmm. took a turn for the worst in the last couple of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's stuff, there's stuff that just doesn't, not only isn't clear, doesn't make sense if you think about it. I will take your word for it. I have to say that there was so much stuff from reading Matt's reviews and seeing people on Twitter talk about it. The whole thing just didn't sound like it made any sense to me at all. Or or it's, some of the stuff that you've posted on the Tumblr. I'm just like... It's, it's stunning. Uh, the, so the end basically seems to be... So the, the final issue is Captain America is now wearing... Hydra Captain America right. is now wearing a... An Iron Man armor in Hydra colors that's powered by a Cosmic Cube. If he has the Cosmic Cube, why is he wearing the Iron Man armor? Right. Doesn't matter. Don't ask. He comes out. He confronts all the superheroes. All the superheroes are now like, okay, we're standing up to you after all. And he's like, doesn't matter. I have a Cosmic Cube. I've rewritten all of history. At which point, Sam Wilson shows up with Ant-Man and... Uh, Bucky. Mm-hmm. Some of who, for who, for some reason, even though Captain America's written all of history, they're still who they were before. Mm-hmm. Because the plot demands it. They fire a miniaturized Bucky with Ant-Man technology into the Cosmic Cube, which means all of a sudden he's magically in the alternate dimension where Kobik, the girl who is a Cosmic Cube, has created where Cap's real self is, 
Mm-hmm. Except, is it her, his real self? Is it her imagined version of his real self? Because there's also, like, Sam is in there, the Red Skull's in there. There's nothing to say whether this is real Cap or a fictional Cap like everyone else there. Right. Unless Bucky ends up in there, pulls Cap out. Mm. And when I say pulls Cap out, it's because Copic the Cosmic Cube all of a sudden has uh, created a new body for this Cap who may or may not be real. Right. Who then beats up Hydra Cap mm-hmm. and undoes, oh, and Kobik undoes all the changes to that Hydra Cap did to history. But she doesn't fix anything else. Like, Las Vegas, uh, Las Vegas is still destroyed. Everyone who's dead is still dead. And she's like, and I'm not going to fix it to teach you all a lesson. <laughs> right. And it ends with. Steve Rogers being like, never again, you guys. Let's never be fascists again, even though my brain was changed by a right. cosmic cube. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the other Avengers are like, you're right, Cap, never again. We're the Avengers! That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's horrible. I mean, holy shit! Yeah, it's, it's stunningly bad. Anyway, Metal, you were going to make fun of it while saying it also still make they care more than Secret Empire. Well, yes, uh, but before I do, actually, the one thing that I wanted to talk about too that I thought was important to mention is I I, I hope you picked it up. Spider Gwen issue twenty three came out, and uh, Hydra as a Hannah issue, right? Yeah, Hannah Bloom and Reich. I haven't read it. I'm, yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard very, very, very good things about it. It's super enjoyable. Jordan Gibson does the colors. And again, there's kind of that thing of like, you know, it. what's awesome about it is it's something that the Spider-Gwen book needed. And it's also very much Hannah doing the stuff that seems very identifiable as her, you know. Yeah. And so it's... Which seems like it's just a super smart direction for that book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it, but is... But is all but walled off as a very specific one shot as well. Is right? it? Is it like here's an imaginary story? Uh, when knocked out and she's imagining this. You you have the watcher. You, yes, the watcher's involved. The watcher? Yeah, the the opening <laughs> wow. is the watcher being like, and it's kind of great because the watcher is kind of being like, yeah, I mean, ah, you know, and the watcher is basically watching instead of watching the events on the earth where Spider-Gwen is taking place is actually watching an event on another Earth where things are, you know, as he puts it, aren't aren't as dark, you know. And then I can't remember if it's like gets called on it by another watcher who's been watching him, which is very funny. And then this is this is all, I think, by the regular team who then go on to introduce the, the sort of the bottle story of... The adv- the adventures of the Mary Janes and Spider Gwen isn't in it at all, except you know, off swinging in the distance or on a TV or something like that. So that's it's, super wacky. Yeah, it's it's super wacky and maybe kind of a little overdone in its wackiness because honestly, I don't know. And it, and I could have missed some crucial point, which is that this story actually really is occurring in the traditional continuity, but it feels like it's not. And then, but it really is a lovely little story about the Mary Janes with characterization and again, Hannah doing her thing in a way that makes you be like, Oh, right. You could get people to do this work and, and have it really elevate the material 
you know, assuming that they want to be doing that work and elevating that material, you know. So it's, it, it, so I just wanted to mention that before going on to metal because it was sort of this. Well, can I spin off that and talk about something that you've uh, recommended on Twitter uh, recently? Yes. Which is the motion issues of Gwenpool? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can totally see why you love it, but part of me thinks they're trying too hard. But I'm super curious as to why you were so impressed about it. Uh, so yes. I want to give a bit of background to this. Gwenpool, as people may or may not know, is the book where a character, for, a, a person from our world ends up in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. She's a comic book fan and she knows the, the laws of the fictional universe, which gives her a kind of omnipotence. Although the early issues of that series are sort of dedicated to that it's not really omnipotence, that yeah. her, her assumptions are flawed and right. that her knowledge is flawed. Mm-hmm. In the most recent storyline, which I guess is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. there is the implication that she has gone back to her world mm-hmm. and that she has to deal with having been in the Marvel Universe and then being back in the quote-unquote real world. Is that the storyline that you have been so bowled over by? Well, like the last Four issues or so? Uh, yes, but that's more or less the starting point for the story. Well, yeah, I don't want I don't want to give it away. Okay, terrific. Thing. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. So yeah, so mm-hmm. so the more much more happens mm-hmm. and the nature of reality itself, you guys, is well it it is. They they, they play a lot of uh structural games. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot of um if you liked Grant Morrison's Animal Man Mm-hmm. and thought, I wish this was zanier and four issues longer. Mm-hmm. I feel that that's really the appeal of these issues. Right. I, I, I feel that there is a lot of, I can step outside the panels. Mm-hmm. Like, what What if I look from this panel into that panel? Mm-hmm. Yada, yada, yada. But, but in, in describing it like that, I'm also explaining partly why I'm not so bowled over by it, which is I feel a lot of it has been done before. So I'm super curious as to what makes you so into it. Is, is it the mix of the, the formal playfulness and the the, the actual plot? Because there, there is an emotional core to this book. Mm-hmm. She she is she's very upset being back in the real world. And she is also directionless in a way that she's not in the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. By, by putting her in this new context, you see a very different side of the character. Mm-hmm. And so is that like, is it the combination of the two or why? Because I remember you and Al on Twitter, uh, Al, Al Kennedy, mm-hmm. talking about how like they, this book has really stepped up. Yeah. And I don't see it. And so I'm super curious as to why you're into it so much. Uh, well... I would have to say that I don't, I can't, I can't necessarily speak for Al. I was enjoying it before, although it was, I think Gwenpool is one of those books that had been good, not great, or even kind of arguably, oh, highly okay, occasionally good. I, first off, I'm, I really love the look of the art by Gori Huru. Um, and the, the sort of the color palettes, uh, in it and, and the illustration style. So that, that's something that I really like a lot. It, I, it is a very pretty book. Yeah. So the book is pretty. Um, I do like, I, I think 
I'm more into Marvel's humor stuff just sort of generally, and I mean, I know you are with Squirrel Girl and stuff, but um, I guess the for me, a lot of it is just this idea of um, bah, 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 that so far, and we'll see where it's going, um, the writer Christopher Sabella and... Um, Chris Hastings, you made this mistake last time. We shit, talked about it as I well. did. Thank there's, you so there's much. Too, for there's too many Chris's. I know yeah, there Chris are. Hastings. Yeah, Chris Hastings. Sorry about that. Uh, it is um, is is like like of course as you know, Morrison's Animal Man stuff was um, builds to a very lovely emotional note that, but one that includes the full on meta text of the of Morrison as Morrison so far that does not seem to be happening and instead it is playing with the idea that Gwen when Gwen when Gwenpool started Gwen as character was a character in the comic book universe who knew that it was a comic book universe or, or seemed to believe so and there was a certain push and pull because of course all the characters that she encountered were real and a lot of the comedy quote unquote comedy came from the tropes of the way in which Hastings would make the stories um, fit the tropes tease like they were going to subvert the tropes and then live up to the tropes and who knows where the metafictional stuff is but I just generally like stories where it's for example um when gwen like is ha- captions herself out of a window like creates a wall of caption text that basically crowds her out of the frame and moves her out of the window and then toward the end of things where she's flat out like being able to jump out of panels and then being able to look at the pages ahead and jump into them yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not saying it's the second coming of Morrison or more or anything like that. I just think that there, it, it, there should be more of that in there anyway. You know what I mean? Like, I personally think that meta comics as a, as a genre of comics is kind of underrepresented apart from the little bit of the cutesy, like, oh, hey, you, uh, the cutesy John Byrne She-Hulk stuff. That, and I think to me that's a, a classic example. Thanks to Matt Turrell, um, I managed to peek a little bit, got three or four issues into um, the the John Byrne She-Hulk trade that's out that sort of collects Byrne's return to She-Hulk and in which the, the metafictional humor, more or less, at least so far, is nothing other than just the occasional wry comment that She-Hulk makes. Uh, or people are like, you know, to sort of underscore, it's it's sort of um, Burns' way to um, make the formula somewhat more fresh for himself by pointing out how aware of the formula he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that for me anyway, Gwenpool is an attempt to take the how's the right word uh is it you know start for me it, it the story has also changed a few times because literally not following the book or the publication schedule at all the very first part of the storyline where Gwen Gwen goes back home 
has the feeling of a final issue to it, right down to everything the, seems the, the to fake end. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there was a, the end caption. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then and that so that's really fun if you're reading it in real time and you don't know that things are going to change. And I could see where that might not work if you're looking at it as a structural piece. But yeah, no, I just I don't know what to tell you. I'm I'm sort of like that. That's that's really interesting to me because I think that the meta aspect of comics in general is at least as a uh, comedic mm-hmm. con- concept inherently limited. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's only so many things you can do with. I'm in a comic. It's wacky. Things are different here. Right. No, I, I, well, I, I agree with that. But then there's also those things of like, I don't know. It's the, when you get right down to the Ib, Eworks thing of having someone like say so many speech balloons and then grab the tails and have them carry themselves out of danger or whatever. Like, I, 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 on the one hand, I know what you're saying. It's kind of like, yeah, we've all seen it before, but part of me is like, I am very happy to have it come back, and I'm very happy that Hastings again has been putting a little more work into it than than I don't than know, just John have Burn like did, I, you know, yeah, or or early issues of Gwenpool for that matter, well, which are pretty much like you're Peter Parker. I know you're Peter Parker, right? Exactly. You know, I, but no, I don't just mean in the sense of you know we've all seen it, but also there's only I feel you can only do that so many times in the one series, even. Like, I don't think Gwenpool can have another moment where she, you know, escapes danger by captioning herself out of a room. Yeah. Or even escapes danger by running through the pages of her comic. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's funny, even as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, Burn did that. But, yeah. but there's there's a, a, a moment in... His fir- whatever the first first run in Sensational She-Hulk, like which was what ten issues or eight issues or something, yeah, where where he chases where she chases a bad guy through the comic through the ads, uh huh, um because they they do a uh, and the states both of us because you'll know what I'm talking about. Remember there used to be the double page ads of back issue sales. Yes, yeah, that's okay. she chases someone through a fake mm-hmm. version of those, which is filled with jokes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. That's very funny, but but I'm like they're like yeah that's you know that also has been done. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just yeah I was. It's not that I thought they were bad comics, but I also was like, yeah, no, you did. <laughs> no, I did. I thought they were comics, but I also thought they were nothing new or not even anything particularly special if you didn't already have uh, fondness for the series, right? I didn't think there was anything here that would make anyone go, oh, this book isn't the book I thought it was. I'll have to pick it up, which is what I felt you and I were both saying. Uh, no, it, it felt like right. it was taking the central conceit of the series in a different direction, but you still had to have an affection for Gwenpool, the series, in order for it to really land. Uh, yes, I think that's I think that's true. And, and it is, it could well have, I, certainly I remember Al's tweet and me being very enthusiastic about it and, and being enthusiastic generally. But yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that, right, you can say that it's strong enough to, to actually sell you on the book or sell you on Gwenpool if you're not, you know what I mean? I, 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 I genuinely think you, well, first mm-hmm. of all, I think you actually have to have read the book in order to even understand the concept of the storyline. Mm-hmm. But 
I think you have to have the affection for the character. Mm-hmm. Because especially Hastings writing of her in these issues mm-hmm. the fact that she is so disaffected when she returns to her world only really works if you know what she's normally like and you like that version of her I think otherwise she comes across as, as so passive as to being disinterested mm-hmm. and without the but I know that's not what she really is like you know I know I know the real her is something someone else I, I don't think the story works. I well, which is interesting because I don't necessarily know if that if if that is the way that it works for me. Like, there's little bits and pieces I think in Gwenpool throughout that is Hastings in some cases maybe just making um, antithetical choices uh, in comparison to Deadpool. Like, there's a lot of Gwenpool that is very much like. You know, can like, oh, I'm gonna not do Deadpool's shtick, even though I've got a character named Gwenpool who is aware that she's in a comic book. You know, yeah. and, and, and a lot of it, a lot of it is Deadpool mm-hmm. shtick with a twist, mm-hmm. which is you know, it's not even a it's not a problem. It's the central conceit of the character. She's called Gwenpool, right? Like you have to have a lot of the Deadpool DNA in there. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think, well, okay, so to me, the thing that I think is interesting with Hastings, and we'll see if it goes further or I'll see anyway, or not, is, is that in some ways, and I mean, let's also keep in mind with Gwenpool, this is a character who I got interested in by, by enjoying playing the character in a video game, right? And there's times where I'm like, there's, I, I keep hoping in a way it's going to end up around that way in which there is kind of a character. You end up with a character who can, like in the game, almost kind of do anything or at least has a tremendous amount of fun while doing it. Like the well, that, that seems to be the, the, the implication of the storyline. Like at least the last issue I read, mm-hmm. the implication is Gwenpool, if she really thinks about it, is omnipotent. Right. And it, and it may, and it may get there, but, but a lot of what Hastings has done up to now, which is potentially relevant or resonant, is, is the idea, and, and for example, there's, there's an, there's an issue where she meets Miles Morales, and, um, and she's so excited to meet him because she's like a, big fan of his comic and of course she knows when she encounters him she knows who he is and that's how she's able to have a team up but he's like you're a sociopath you know and of course there is that idea that that isn't explored a little bit when she's with the the group of mercenaries that she's with that that she sees the she sees the world in a way that they of course find incredibly either insulting or horrifying. And I I wonder the extent to which Hastings is kind of saying something about I mean, it, it could well at this point just be kind of like a light piffle, but I think there's a lot to this idea of like, oh, here's Gwenpool, she's the ultimate comic book nerd fan, and the people that she's a fan of kind of hate her because she's a terrible person. You know, I think that's a potentially really interesting way to go with some comic book commentary. I'm 
98% sure that it's not going to pan out that way. But, um, but you know, I, I'm good. Yeah, I, I am also, I am probably also 98% because I'm not sure how conscious the book, or for that matter, Hastings is about how terrible a person Gwenpool is. Ah, uh, it seems to come up a lot, but okay. Uh, I mean, uh, I, uh, I'll take your, I'll take your word for it. I don't, I think a lot of people, I think he is just thinking about it in a formalist way, which is, they're gonna think she's terrible, she's gonna think that she's fine, you know, and as opposed to actually trying to have something to say about it, it's more like, oh, I'm just trying to explore this conceit here. Which again, well, but also, and I could be. I'm part of me is wondering if I have read further ahead than you have somehow. It's um, possible. I don't know. I might be an episode issue behind. The so. brother, her brother, mm-hmm. who also ends up in the Marvel universe. Yeah, seems very like it. That she is a sociopath is not subtext in the book mm-hmm. because her brother actively. Uh, Actively says that, I, like actively responds in that way when he sees her in action as Gwenpool, and that is what is behind the current plot. Uh, yeah, yeah, could That's be. That's why I'm wondering if I'm further ahead. Um, Cause, cause, like, there's there's a couple of like things you've said in particular. I'm like, wait, have I read further than you? Maybe you have. Like the mention of Miles Morales and the mention of Gwen's abilities, knowing that she's a fictional, knowing that she's in a fictional world, right. like are expressly those two things and Gwen being a sociopath are expressly what this story is about to me. Um, yeah, maybe. Hold on, I don't think it's later than issue nineteen, which I believe that I've read. Yeah, I want to say nineteen was the last one I read. Let me make sure and make sure that I've read that because I'm. Pretty sure that. Well, I could see that. I can say the cliffhanger. Um. Yeah. Let me flip through here. What is? Oh, yeah. You know, actually, it does end with the. Uh, I I did read this issue, although frankly, most of it, I didn't. I don't think I retained most of this issue. Amusingly <laughs> that, enough, that that's why I'm like, like I think you know, either you didn't remember, you did remember, and you're playing done. Or a lot of this issue stuck with you and you didn't realize it stuck with you. Right. <laughs> you're like, Miles Morales. And then if Gwen ever realized, I'm like, wait, that's kind of what the last issue is all about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, um, I, I did read it. Yes. And apparently, but it did, did not stick. I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, right. Evil Gwenpool there at the end. So yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see, Graham. I, well, like, Evil and also Miles' is future Miles, whose life has been ruined by, by Gwen. Right. And who literally gives her a variation on the great power, great responsibility, by the way, you have no responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just a couple of issues earlier, you have her brother say, holy shit, she's a sociopath. Because she, she's, she's doing what she's doing, but she, she is just happily killing everyone. Like, the, this is, this is, this person is horrifying. Mm-hmm. This person is a sister, this person is horrifying. You know, so so all of that, all of that is textual, mm-hmm. I guess. But, and this is where I think the Hastings is. I don't know either. Is either so not you're really like, aware of her horrible? Uh huh. Well, no, because part of it is I think that despite that, he's like, but Gwen's still lovable. 
which is where I have the, the problem with it. Mm-hmm. He's like, other people see her as a sociopath, but she's really trying her best. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, that's where I have the disconnect. That I think so much of this arc is like, sure, there's evil Gwen and all these people hate Gwen and she's, she's a sociopath, but she's not really is like an implication. I just feel is there throughout the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's yeah. where it, Right. That's why I think he's literally going to end. He's going to fudge it, and he's going to be like, "You guys, she just needed to be shown the right way." Mm-hmm. And that's like that's uh, it. It's not only not interesting to me; it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Why does it leave? Because it comes up really close. It comes up really close to being like, "Yeah, this person is a sociopath," and then like, "No, she was just not thinking about other people's feelings." And that's just like it's 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 my problem with the Punisher as well. That people are like the Punisher, you know, sure he's murdering everyone, but you know, have you ever thought about what it'd be like if your family died? <laughs> and it's like that's not a defense, you guys. <laughs> like I like you know I, I, I we've talked about like I just can't get the Punisher at all. Like the only Punisher comic I ever liked was the Rocco one because it was the one where it was like he's a monster, right. <laughs> Right. And that was the entire point of the comic. Yeah. And anything else. Anything else is like, but have you ever thought about the real tragedy of the Punisher? I just cannot get on board with. Well, and, and I'm, I, I'm yeah. really worried that Gwenpool is going to take a, I mean, nowhere near that side of it, but like, sure, so she's a sociopath, but now she now knows better. And it just, it, it doesn't land well with me at all. Well, I have to say that uh, it lands just fine with me, Graham. <laughs> that's fine. You also like the Punisher, so that like, right, exactly. That's, that's one of the I'm not sure many people would have drawn a through line between the two characters, but I see how you're where you're going with that, and that's that's that is pretty interesting. I have to say, Gwen well, Punisher, they both run around with guns and in tights and shoot people. Yep. the end. I <laughs> know <laughs> Marvel characters, and they probably team up with Spider-Man a bunch. Yep, that's that's true. Um, yeah, it, you know, in fact, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about the Punisher, as as someone who loved the character, is, is part of what was frustrating about uh, the early appearances of the character in Spider-Man were the 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 kind of kind of like when Marv Wolfman was like, okay, now I'm going to bring Vigilante into DC, you know, a guy in a George Perez designed ski suit. Uh, where it's that idea of like it's you know for lack of a better term writing bleeding heart liberals writing a you know not liberal book i suppose uh, not not a liberal fantasy and so therefore there's kind of this thing of like oh it's kind of distasteful you know like there was always with the punisher a little bit of people like kind of holding their nose to where the point where you get to bill mantlo uh handling the punisher in um uh, uh, Peter, Peter Parker's Parker. spectacular Spider-Man, and he's like gunning down jaywalkers and stuff like that because that's the the most um, logical uh, extension of the character in the fantasy, as far as Mantlo's concerned, you know. And then immediately you get someone like Miller who's like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm very very interested in this character, you know, the original take of this character. So, which is not, I'm not going to present any sort of way. Uh, I'm not even trying to defend the Punisher, much less I happen to know that that would be probably really impossible in general, and certainly super impossible with you. <laughs> but um, but so I but don't you, think like, that that's... 
you don't have to defend the pun. Like the Punisher right. is exactly. the Punisher is what he is. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you don't have to defend him because I'm not like it's a worthless character. It's just a character I have no interest in. Right. Whereas Gwenpool is a worthless character for you, and I do have to defend it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like what? <laughs> sure, if that's where you want to go. No, with no, that, no, okay. no, 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 no. I'm, te- I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> hey, did you read Spy Seal issue one? I did not. I did not. Uh, I, honestly, part of what scared me off Spy Seal was all the publicity around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to wait until I'm not expecting it so much out of it, mm-hmm. because right now I know I'm going to get disappointed by it. Yeah, I mean, although for me, part of me. I mean, is maybe, like, I, maybe I am, no matter when I read it. Yeah, maybe. For right now, I feel that I would just be like, you know, this isn't the modern day Tintin book that I want it to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's certainly not that. What it is is it's it's very it's very lovely. This it's uh, as someone who's followed some of other Tommaso's work, it's really fun seeing. I guess an American, I'm assuming he's American, maybe he's Canadian, doing that Linnea Claire style and really having it work for him. You know, Tommaso is someone whose work I dug in Dead Corridor. Uh, and then I think I, I have She-Wolf, but I haven't read it. And I like his, his stylization, but his stylization always sort of fell like a half step short or shy of kind of yeah. feeling like its own fully developed thing. And I'm surprised, at least for me, Spicyl looking at it is so much, um, so captures that vibe very uh, well, I think. But that being said, also kind of there is a certain amount of <laughs> kind of like you with the Spider Gwen. You're like, yeah, but who cares? I've already seen this already. So, um, so I was curious. I think I think when you do read it, I think you will enjoy it as long as you don't expect too much. Um, well, that's just it. Like, I, because I, I didn't even know about it until it was the whole furry about why are more people not buying this? Right. And the problem with learning about a book through that is you only really learn about it through the people who are like, this is the best thing in the world. Right. And that's the worst way to learn about a comic. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Because, because you just, you literally go into it with your expectations really high. Right. So it ends up with, like, it's on the list of things I will read when I've forgotten that so many people were like, I can't believe people hate comics so much that they weren't buying this. <laughs> because I, I'll, I'll expect too much. Like, I saw the preview and I went, that looks really interesting. I really like his art. Mm-hmm. And then was like, but I'll read it in six months. Mm. I'm killing comics, Jeff. You, you, single-handedly, Graham. Single-handedly. <laughs> I have one more. I, you're really going to get to metal eventually, but I have I'm, one more unrelated yes. question. Mm-hmm. How would you feel? And this is a complete thought experiment that came to me earlier on today. Wow. Okay. How would you feel if 2080 gave Halo Jones to someone else? Uh, I, I'd, I'd feel really creeped out by that. I think. Why? Just, just because it's not Moore and Gibson? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because I, I honestly was like, is Halo Jones a legacy character? Because part of me thinks that 2080 doesn't really have those. And part of that is you've got your Pat Mills characters, you've got Dread, and, you know, the creators are still writing. Mm-hmm. That's what not it, true of all characters. You know, right. uh, Rogue Trooper passed a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put Robo Hunter to Mark Miller, and he pretty much killed the strip. Right. Uh, but you do have like Wagner's doing Strontium Dog again. 
Mm-hmm. Wagner's on tread all this time. Pat Mills has only been like, I don't think anyone else has written a Slade comic or an ABC comic that's not Pat Mills. Right. Um, but I, I, out of nowhere, I was like, what if 2008 gave Halo Jones to like an up and coming female writer? Is that something that could work? Yeah, I mean, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing that's sort of like, I'm like, I don't know, Graham. It's it's funny because for me, as you know, Moore's always a good little thought experiment where my knee jerk is like, no, protect the guy, you know, like, mm-hmm. don't, why give him more grief? And, and I also kind of think, although I could be wrong, I, I sort of feel like, I mean, you could get a little slight extra pu- push of publicity if you're like, oh, hey, you know, Marguerite Bennett's doing Halo Jones, you know, but I, I, I'm not sure you would actually get that much i mean god knows it really does seem like after watching the what appears to be the 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 failure of of miracle man reprints from marvel or you know like i'm not really sure the extent to which those characters are hey by the way which reminds me were you thinking that miracle man was coming back oh he's coming back at the end of of marvel legacy I, I, yeah, that's the, that's the only theory. one I, that's the only one I can think. But mm. since then, Mark Buckingham has been like, I swear to God, I'm working on new Miracle Man pages. Mm-hmm. So maybe not. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just can't think who else would come back at the end of Marvel Legacy that anyone would give a shit about, to be honest. Oh, well, yeah. That... No, like, seriously, like, I, even under Marvel's, we are absolutely insane and think everything we do is going to sh- break the internet. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone that isn't the Fantastic Four who they've already said no, it's one character. So I can't think of anyone who's not Marvel Man or Miracle Man that that would work. Hmm. Like I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Are you still there, Graham? You know, someone this week was like, it could be the Watcher. Maybe it is, but in that case, Marvel is deluded. <laughs> <laughs> If you think anyone's going to give a shit. Right. Well, I don't know. Because you said that, I'm looking up the last appearance of Marvel Man before he was revived. 1961. Hmm. No, 1960. Okay, so either 59 or 60 Mm -hmm. was the final appearance, and he was revived in 82. So let's call it 23. Three years, right? Okay. When did Halo Jones end? I'm wondering. I'm wondering now if it's been longer between of Marvel Man being out of print than has Halo Jones being out of print. Oh wow, that's really funny. Uh, you mean of new new material being done? Yeah. Of course, right? Yeah. Probably. I think it has. I think it has been. Well, no, wait, because I think I feel like Halo Jones was finished, uh, quote unquote, finished. Um, by the time Moore had come, I don't know if he was still doing the, if Eclipse, certainly. 86. Was, 1986. Yeah. So it's been 31 years since there's been your Halo Jones. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I think Halo Jones would be tough because the story isn't even complete. You know what I mean? Like right? it's just, and I think that's one of the reasons is is that. Uh, that's actually why I was wondering if you could revive it. Uh, I mean, because you could say like it's book four. 
because they always said there's going to be what nine books or however many they said there's going to be. Right. You know. Yeah, I just I kind of feel like people. I don't think I don't think people would care. I mean, I I think even if you got like a best case scenario, which is is that Alan Moore is like yes. You know, I've given, which would, which would never happen. Well, no, but I mean, like, if he was like, I've given my, the original, I, my original plot synopsis for everything that I had planned to my daughter, Leah Moore, and she's going to take it over and do it. Well, my thought experiment was literally Alan Moore made his name in part by reviving Marvel Man mm-hmm. uh, and taking on another character's IP and Another creator's IP, I should say, mm-hmm. um, and and doing what he wanted with it and made his reputation. Right. What if, like, not Leah Moore or Mercury Bennett, literally a newcomer mm-hmm. was given Halo Jones, which at this point has been unused for longer mm-hmm. than Marvel Man. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's not like Watchmen where there's some well does Moore on it because he doesn't. Like, it's owned by by 2080. It's owned by Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And it just—I don't know. It's—I—I I kind of feel like it. Not it could work sales-wise, but more. I'm wondering if the—I'm wondering if fandom has become such a thing that people would be like, "No, you can't," because that's Alan Moore's, and no one else can touch it. In a way that you didn't have. Who is this Alan Moore guy? No one else can touch Marvel Man. It's McAngelos. Well, okay, you know? but but. I think, and I could be wrong in overstating things considerably, but I don't think that back in the day, I don't think that readers for the most part were really thought too closely about IP. Like if Miracle Man came back when, you know, uh, if Marvel Man came back in the pages of Warrior, there was kind of that assumption of like, it must be okay. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't that idea of, and, but I mean, I think that's for the most what? part. Like I don't think, I don't think that, for example, Roy Thomas like picked up the Fantastic Four and was like, what, you know, like, wow, how does Carl Burgos feel about this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it yeah. was, no, it no, was no, news no, no. to a lot I, of us to find out yeah. that he was pissed off about it. I just yeah. don't think that that was necessarily – I feel like to an extent that's more and more on the radar. And there's still plenty of fanboys who, for the most part, are like, ah, I don't give a crap. Like, you know, it's, if, if it was announced tomorrow that you were going to have like – Jesus, I don't know, that Brandon Graham was going to turn around and do the, the adventures of, of R. Crumb's Mr. Natural because it turns out that there was a competing – you know, someone's convinced that they own the copyright to it and they're going to move forward with it. Like I, people will be like, yeah, sure, that's that's fine with me, you know. And there's other people who are just going to be like, I kind of don't see the point. And at least for me, I'm kind of like, I kind of don't see the point. I think that Halo Jones, to me, like reading that, reading those books, I don't think there's a there's really a lot there to hang a hat on, you know. In fact, well, one of the things like that's in crazy, my mind, the only thing is there is that this is like it's Halo Jones. Alan Moore wrote it. Like, it, there's nothing else there. Well, I think that, I think that for me, as someone who hasn't, who had, was incredibly slow and sluggish about science fiction, I think that Halo Jones benefits a little bit from the fact that, that Alan Moore, who's heavily in his sort of 
you know, early young um, rip off everything that isn't nailed down kind of phase is sort of like, hey, you know, I bet a lot of people who, you know, read quote unquote science fiction in, in 2000 AD haven't really read, like the majority of the science fiction in, in that stuff is pretty much sort of the same moribund kind of science fiction that you used to see from comics. Whereas like, you know, Moore's like, well, fuck, you know, why not rip off Barry Maltzberg? Why not rip off some of, um, uh, Moorcock's stuff, you know, from, you know, why not rip off what the British New Wave was doing with science fiction rather than just sticking to the, to like a punked up version of what Dan Dare was doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's something to that, but, but at the same time, like, there's no real pressing, like they're no there apart from that. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, there might be like talking, you know, if you were to get um a really top notch science fiction author to revisit Halo Jones and basically bring everything that's happened in science fiction since then into it, that might be more interesting with the awareness of that's kind of what the hook was, but but yeah, it's kind of it is it is so strange it's kind of weird like again the the weird mapping of the stuff with marvel man is how how much more is looking at the captain marvel analog behind marvel man you know and and taking some of those pieces and appearances i mean it was such a weird i think part of him was like yeah i i i have no trouble like defiling this character although years later I'll feel pretty terrible about it because the character was <laughs> barely a character at the time anyway you know what I mean like I you know that's where he start but you look at more clearly when he looks at you look at stuff happening with like oh I don't know the killing joke or whatever where he's like you know for his part he's kind of been like yeah I was a little too bloodthirsty and I was a little too revisionistic and you mm-hmm. know I should do Supreme, and as Graham McMillan pointed out, just rip off the old Silver Age DC stories directly instead, you know, rather than as as a tribute to them, rather than than defiling them. So, uh, you know, I I don't I don't know. For myself, it just it seems like a lose lose situation. But um, I'm just I don't know. I just this all comes from, of course, Doomsday Clock, mm-hmm. uh, and the response to Doomsday Clock. Mm-hmm. Which also, and you will find this hilarious, and I will update you and all the listeners about this. Um, I haven't read Watchmen in years, so I'm going to read Watchmen again for Doomsday Clock. It oh, comes Jesus. out. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to read all of Before Watchmen first, which I've never read. I've only read parts of Before Watchmen. I'm going to read the whole fucking thing, Jeff. Jesus. I, I, it's all, you'll be happy to know I'm not paying any money for it. It's all at the local library. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's there, there's vast chunks, if not more than half of Before Watchmen, I've never read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of me is I'm, this actually started off because I was like, I wonder if Before Watchmen counts in Doomsday Clock. Like, I wonder if Jeff Johns is going to reference something from fucking Before Watchmen. That would be there. hilarious, right? Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to do all that. But thinking about. Uh, think about the, the, the very, uh, aggressive pushback some people are giving Doomsday Clock. 
mm-hmm. got me thinking about just the very aggressive uh, defensiveness people have about more projects in general. Mm-hmm. And then Halo Jones for me, because it's unfinished, because Gibson tried to continue it mm-hmm. and was shut down, mm-hmm. um, has always had this really weird, not only an unfinished quality, but this weird, almost uh, forgotten quality. Mm-hmm. That like it's a Moore project that never really went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, could, like could someone finish it? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's someone step in and be like, okay, I'm going to tell the the, the the rest of her life because this was supposed to be the story of her entire life up until her death. Right. Like, can someone step in? And I think, I think it couldn't happen. I think the, the pushback would be too much. Mm-hmm. I think people would be like, you know, if Alan Moore is not doing this, or at least signing off on it, mm-hmm. then then it's you know this is this is a bastardization. This is this you know this is abhorrent. This is terrible. But at the same time, I think that speaks more to the defensiveness fan culture has about Alan Moore than any sort of internal logic. Because right. I don't see, like, I think if everything else is up for grabs, and everything else is up for grabs, everything gets fucking revived. Like, why, why is called the Slayer okay to revive, but Halo Jones isn't? You know, right? Uh, uh, like, that... if Werewolf by Night comes back, mm-hmm. why can't Halo Jones? Right. Uh, yeah, you know, and I, I think there's, I think there's sort of maybe a case to be made for that although i think there's there's con there's also context to me skull of the slayer created by marv wolfman you know he later tries to argue that he has ownership of the characters but he also like is off the book by issue four you know like that there i do think there was a little well, bit okay, of some, the something is skull of the slayer but something where the you know the creator stayed on the book for the entire run so council dakota north uh-huh. The creative right. team is consistent through all of the, those five issues. Right. right. Like, because I don't think you get anyone saying, well, you can't do Dakota North unless it's Martha Thomas's and, and Tony Salmon's. Mm-hmm. In the same way that you will get people being like, oh, you can't do Halo Jones if it's not Alan Moore and Ian Gibson. Uh... And it's, it, it's super, it's, I don't know. I don't know where the line is, but I know that mm-hmm. there's such a protectiveness about more projects. You know, I, I I almost feel like uh, I feel like a good comparison would be like one of J. Michael Straczynski's uncompleted oh projects. Like, did he complete Squadron Supreme, or or not? No, no, he abandoned it, and then Chaykin came on and did a run on it. Oh, okay, okay, right. Because I know that they've done people have done Squadron Supreme characters that have yeah, no, Chaykin Chaykin did a run following uh, Straczynski. Oh, okay. So, like, I'm sort of like, there's a way in which, it, admittedly, part of the factor is, is that Alan Moore is, is, you're right, is Alan Moore, and so there's a little bit of the, you know, oh, well, what if somebody, you know, took, took a sort of a similar uncompleted thing, a, again, especially one where they did, where the IP isn't owned, or the thing was unfinished, and I'm trying to. That's why I was like, "Oh, Straczynski's got to. It's got to be strewn with like unfinished." Well, no, that's just it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think of things where like there's obviously unfinished stories, right? But I can't. I can't. Like, what else is there? 
Because there's got to be something. Like, oh, there's tons. Yeah, I, I I say tons, but I'm like, yeah. What I mean, what if you manage to get actually? Like, yes. Uh, uh, Jonathan Latham's Omega the Unknown. That that finished. But you're saying if someone turned around, no, and no, did no. Another. But Gerber and and Skeen's and Mooney's Omega did not finish. Well, like yeah. um, Latham's Omega the Unknown is exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh huh. That oh, is, yeah, right. uh, that mm-hmm. is taking on the essentially reinventing the character uh, from an unfinished story. Well, yes, I mean, right. And Gerber wasn't happy about that, of course, as you know, and even yeah. talked to Latham, and Latham was like, "Oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't understand," which seems somewhat di- disingenuous, perhaps. But, but yeah, there was, the, I, and that's Actually, the thing. I'm yeah. not sure how disingenuous that was. I would not be surprised if Latham was told that right by Marvel. He's totally on board. Oh yeah, I mean, like, that, I, I, that would not surprise me at all. Yeah, it, it, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Because it's not like like Moore has gone out of his way to make it clear how unhappy he is that anyone is doing anything with any of his concepts. Mm-hmm. And Gerber didn't really. Uh, n- not in the same way, but in fact, Gerber was someone who was was like because there wasn't the internet back then. But Stephen Grant tells the story about like trying to do a, a story where he was like, "Oh, I thought it'd be really clever to introduce." bring back this character uh, because I loved it and I figured the uh create the creator would dig it too and in fact the creator was incredibly pissed off like Gerber's a is, real is, is, is he talking about the his omega the unknown conclusion uh cuz Grant wrote the 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 quote unquote conclusion to that story in Avengers I thought that that was uh I thought that was Ed Hennigan I thought Hennigan nope. wrote that Stephen Grant wrote the stewishes oh probably then yeah that So he's yeah he probably me. is talking mm-hmm. about that yeah so I mean so Gerber was actually one of those guys who who sort of didn't do a great job of letting it know kind of in the same way that people know now, but but also kind of people learned but, but very it, quickly. I, yeah, but, but I guess what I guess the difference for me is like Moore preemptively does it. Moore publicly says, you know, don't touch my toys. And Gerber, it sounds like, tells people after it's been announced. Well, but again, you know, which which are, are very different ways, and arguably Moore's doing it better. Uh, you know, because which which would you rather do? Would you have someone say, "I really don't want you to do this"? I, you know, I don't even know if you're thinking of doing this, but please don't do this. Or would you rather be told, "Yeah, they're okay with it," and then have a phone call from them after you've said yes, and they're like, "I really wish you hadn't said yes." Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I, okay, so. I, I, Sorry, on you go. I was going to bring in yes. another hypothetical. Uh-huh. I was going to say the only other, like, sort of the, the flip side of this for me is Kirby, and that you have so many people who are like, I'm doing Kirby projects. Right. And it seems not okay, but like accepted. Yeah. No, in a way. Right. 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 Do you know what I mean? That, that it's, you know, it's like, of course you're doing, like, of course you're trying to finish the fourth world. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, of course you're, you know, you're doing the Eternals. Mm-hmm. Some, someone's going to come along and be like, 
I know they killed off Moon Boy in the first issue of this new Devil Dinosaur series, but I'm going to tell the final Moon Boy story. Right. And everyone would be like, I can't wait to read the final Moon Boy story. Well, people do and don't. I mean, again, I, okay, one thing that I think is really interesting is I'm making grand sweeping statements. Uh, well, or I mean, there, there, there is, of course, people who are very much behind Doomsday Clocks. There's, of course, very people who are very much upset that uh, Devil uh, Moon Boy gets killed off. Right. You know? Yeah, right. I'm, I'm like, yes, I'm one of those. For me, I mean, here's, there's a number of reasons why I think Doomsday Clock is something that I'm not paying attention to, but is arguably, and this is exactly the sort of thing that will make you roll your eyes and drive you nuts, uh, arguably vile. And, and part of that is, is that Watchmen was not designed to be like an ongoing series. Like that whole thing really does get, Tied off. There is a lot. Oh sure, of... no, no, no. I I totally get that argument, but yeah. that's why Halo Jones is so interesting to me because it's an unfinished story. Right. No, and I and, and yes, I think I think there's a way in which, um, I guess people could be like, oh yeah, that's that's sort of again like, well, that's within their rights. I mean, it's a it's a little bit like with uh, when when 2000 AD or Titan Books was republishing Zenith, they were kind of like. We're within our rights. And Morrison was like, well, no, 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 no. And they're like, you can stop it if you think you have the rights to do so. And then nothing really happened. And then I think people are kind of in that weird zone of like, you know, I mean, it is it uh, the whole world. Believe me, the whole the whole superhero comic book concept really spins so much on, you know, how much you're willing to ignore people's unhappiness you know and whether that's the unhappiness of like oh hey bill finger you know died really unhappy or carl burgos burned all of his comic book pages on his front lawn nearly insane with anger or you know you'll get steranko looking incredibly tan and in a you know a snappy in a suit talking about how un- upset that he is that Marvel like burned him on the you know shield reprints by reprinting through Marvel Italy or whatever to avoid paying him you know uh his royalty rates or you know whatever it is there's just kind of that constant thing of as we ha- as happened so often in American life, you're like, oh, I'm enjoying this thing. I guess I can't really think about how much misery someone else <laughs> had to had to bear in order yeah, for exactly. me to put this in my hands. And American uh, American superhero comics really does seem like a very or superhero, you know. What, what should I say? Like IP, you know, non-creator-owned uh, comics really do have a lot of like, I, I, you know, I don't know where I'm okay with. And of course, people who have been very excitedly listening to us, I'm, I'm sure there's a contingent that's like, what's Jeff going to waffle on or flip-flop on or suddenly make a a weird dramatic stand on this episode? I don't, I don't know. Halo Jones is not necessarily a hill that I would die on, but I also think that I'm not <laughs> I, sure I if it's ho- analogous because I, be. I just think people would be indifferent to it. You know, <laughs> you're like I will only die on hills that people care about. Right. I'm not going to die on a hill that people just are, are waffling about. Right. Well, make a decision. Once they've made a stand, I'll make a stand. Yeah, that's, when that's I've, probably. But I've seen their stand. Yeah. Then. <laughs> I'll, then. I'll, 
I'll make my own decisions about Believe this Believe me, exactly. I will make a very, very principled stand based on other people's principles. Uh, but, yeah. but like I, I, but I do like I understand the pushback for Doomsday Clock more than I would the pushback for Halo Jones. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm you know? relieved to hear but that. I, but also, I don't know. I just I keep making the Halo Jones Marvel Man analogy in my brain as well. It's I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it's there. <laughs> well, no, because I do <laughs> so kind of get it because because more really, if there is a person for whom the majority of his career has a lot of uh, do as I say, not as I do. Um, no, you that, know, that's the Alan Moore method. Well, uh, it, like, it's a chunk of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so there are areas in which it's like, but I, but I, I don't know. I mean, I also feel that, um, God, I, so I, as, as to, to bring it back at least a little bit to the beginning of this episode, I have not been sleeping very well the last couple of nights. And one of the things that I've done, uh, on, is on Twitter, created a safe search for San Francisco because particularly after that first night I was like okay I'm really curious how many old people died because I feel like I barely managed to make it through that one and you know apparently I'm an enormous crybaby because nobody died and that first day the majority of the San Francisco searches on Twitter for San Francisco that came up were like hey the Russian embassy like burned a bunch of documents in a on a day where like we had our worst air quality ever which is ironic but but on top of that is just people shitting on san francisco you know which as you know is kind of a very popular thing like yeah you know everyone loves to do it Mm mm-hmm and I just have this. I, I, I live in Portland. We, I, we both know what this is like. Right. Exactly. So, so there is a little bit of the way of, um, you know, Edie and I were kind of talking a little bit about the, I don't think she has to deal with it as, as much as I do. That for me, it's the never ending, um, struggle not to, to, to join in on, uh, what feels like chip on my shoulder discourse. You know what I mean? But I saw someone write something about San Francisco and I really was like, oh, I've got a few seconds here while, you know, my wife's in the bathroom. Let me tell this guy what an ignorant shithead he is. You oh, know? Jeff, no. Well, I didn't, of course. But I had that moment where it's like, oh, it kind of seems like a good idea. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not. No, it's not. You know, it really is not a good idea. But there are times where the discourse is so crappy. Like, like I I I think my approach to Doomsday Clock is a really sensible one, which is just like I'm not paying any attention to it. I don't yeah, really... it, was, it was your approach to Secret Empire as well. Yeah, like I I know this thing exists. I do not like it. I do not find it interesting, nor do I really approve of it. So I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, it just just kind of doesn't seem like I'm like this probably is not going to be my thing. But I remember with Before Watchmen, I was like, yeah, I, I boycotted that, you know, and it turned out great. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of like... Wait, what turned out great? <laughs> I'll tell you this right now. The comics didn't. No. Um, they also didn't sell well. Yeah, yeah. So it turned out great for you? Yeah. Ex- well, okay. I mean, I, no, I just mean in the sense of like, yeah, I really thought those comics were going to wreck my, my uh, feelings on Watchmen. And in fact... They had no effect whatsoever, which was wonderful. It's like, yeah, like we were joking about. It's like they never existed. 
Yeah, you know, and so. why would they? Um, I think most people think they never exist. Right, exactly. I mean, and that does help. Like, it, it could be entirely different if it was, it had been such a huge hit that they're, that they, that DC was doing before Watchmen 3 and, you know, Brandon Graham was writing a Dr. Manhattan series illustrated by Frank Quitely, and I'd be sitting there going, oh, motherfucker! You know what I mean? Like, I... Well, what I like is this is the second time in this episode you've brought up Brandon Graham as someone doing a project like that, and both times I'm like, he would never do a project. I, well, like on the one hand... Like are right. you instinctively yeah. choosing the one creator who would probably set fire to his hand before doing a project like that? Well, yes, probably. Probably, but on the other hand, you don't necessarily know, cause Grandin, uh, Br- Grandin, uh, Graham, Grandin Bram, Grandin Bram, uh, he did turn around and he worked, for, he did, he did amazing work for Rob Liefeld and, and people were like, well, what about your rights? And Graham was kind of like, who cares? You know, like he, he was very jejun about it. He was like, I know what I'm getting out of it. I know what I wanted to put into it to get what I'm getting out of it, and that works for me, which is great. But but there was also a little something that's kind of like, well, then, you know, essentially, why are you giving people at DC and Marvel such a hard time when you're working for Rob Liefeld, who engaged in, like, some pretty egregious work-for-hire projects with his own characters and spoilers a lot of his characters were shitty you know but so but the answer the answer is because he can and because it's easy and because it's like it's part of the game i'm not sure that i'm like i'm fascinated by all of your replies most of which sound like uh taylor swift lyrics but i don't necessarily know <laughs> look what you made him do exactly <laughs> <laughs> the old brandon can't come to the phone anymore um <laughs> No, I I feel I feel that, and I say this as a fan of Branson's work, mm-hmm. but I think that uh, his I think giving DC Marvel shit fit very much his uh, brand, for want of a better way of putting it, his public persona, mm-hmm. and that he could simultaneously ignore that when it comes to Rob Liefeld, mm-hmm. because that also kind of fit with his brand. Mm-hmm. Because it's you know it's simultaneously I'm giving the finger to the man, but hey, I'm doing what I want. Isn't that what being a creator is all about? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 win-win for him. Well, I mean that could be that could be. I personally think, although I could be wrong, is is that Graham has talked about trying to get his foot in the door, even just at Vertigo, right, and having essentially. Vertigo being, you know, being told that that was the, and knowing that that was like the creator's, uh, option, you know, creator owned option and kind of being told that his work, that, that he had to kind of, that it was, that even that was a Procustrian bed. You know what I mean? So I think you're right. That idea of doing your own thing is important to Graham and his ideas like, you know, Liefeld wasn't, Liefeld let me do what I want, and as he put it, that is that was his priority. Part of the thing that really bothers him, I think, about what you see in the big two is is that people are having to lop off their arms and legs to fit into that particular bed, and the reward for that is so terrible, you know. Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, so part of me is like, yes, I think there's a way in which Graham is it, like you said, it fits into his brand, but I also don't think that it, you know, and I could be overreacting. I don't think that it's maybe as much of a, oh, I'm doing this to stir up shit as, as, as that sort of, as I'm willing to, um, infer from the way you put that, I guess, which is not to okay. say that, you're, that you are saying that. But if you see if you see where I'm getting at, sure, yeah. So uh, if we were to wind this back before you said Brandon Graham, uh, what were we talking about? Because I've genuinely forgotten. oh Jesus Christ! Oh, I oh I was talking about before Watchmen three, like before oh, yeah, Watchmen yeah. had been a huge success. Like it's pretty yeah. easy but, for me to yeah, sit which there. Which was was definitely not <laughs> right. Exactly. So, and Doomsday Clock is kind of interesting because, of course, it's Jeff Johns and it's Gary Frank, and Johns is really putting a lot of weight behind it and and frankly Johns is um he's a he's a character a creator whose work I do find sort of interesting I mean I I think Tim's the Clock's an infinitely more interesting project than before Watchmen than for Watchmen yeah because I, another thing else, I think he's going to try and say something what he's going to try and say I think right. may be difficult for a lot of people or for that matter may even be nonsensical Mm-hmm. But I think it's a. I think if you're going to do something with the Watchmen characters, doing something that tries to recontextualize them, even in the context of well, now they meet Superman, is more interesting than here's what happened five minutes before Watchmen issue one. Right. No, I. Uh, well, I mean, but at I, the same time, I'm not trying to convince you to read it because I think no, 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 no. of honestly, course, I think it will just make you sad. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that was one of the things about DC Legacy where I was like, Argh. and I mean, I remember you, you were very much a fan of that ending, you know, the audacity of it, but you were also like, but yeah, no, this is really saying something. This is really saying, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and be like, I think it's going to meet every bit of potential I think it has mm-hmm. because I honestly don't think it will. Mm-hmm. I, I think my feelings on DC and Watchmen as separate entities and what they could say to each other are not Jeff Johnson's feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to come away disappointed, I'm fairly sure. But right. that doesn't mean it's not going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Whereas I think your feel, I put it this way, I think my feelings are more in tune with Johns's than yours are. Uh, yeah. So I think the dissonance for me, will still allow me to enjoy it, whereas the distance for you might just be so frustrating you want to rip your head off. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that's probably I think that's probably accurate. Because um, I mean, just looking at some of the stuff that, just hearing the stuff that Johns is saying, or that you're you've told me that Johns has said, I'm I just find myself being like, yeah, this is this is this is not going to work, you know. But I mean, Johns is. I and just yeah no anyway so yeah <laughs> Jeff we're we're at the two hour mark but I want to go back to metal <laughs> oh God right so you know one of the things I thought was interesting about metal the first issue is uh you know I picked up the prelude issues uh the casting and the forge or whatever and I enjoyed them. And Metal had, it wasn't as bad as the Defenders TV show, but it was, 
I thought I thought that first issue was a huge letdown, and I think it was fascinating to me how much of that was Capullo, but I also felt that that Snyder was. I don't I don't know if he like wrote metal with this idea that you know and then added got convinced to add the prologues later, but there was a certain amount of metal of shit that was like, hey, look at this. Isn't it crazy? And I'm like, I feel it was kind of crazy last issue when you introduced it, but now it's just kind of coming back in. But there was also a certain amount of, for me, I was just stunned by how much Capullo seemed to be phoning it in, where I was like, wow, I don't know if this was right around the time this guy got his, you know, enormous check from from the Miller World Netflix property and felt made himself kind of be like, what am I doing with my life, really? Maybe I'm not doing this right, you know, or or whatever. But there were points where Capullo was just, some of those pages looked like him. He was so bored or not into it, and you know, and which is something that I just is not what I think of is the Capullo way. So mm-hmm. I was kind of, so I kind of had that thing. Did you read it? Did you like it? Were you not really into it, but you weren't expecting to not be into it? Did you have any kind I, of real? I did read it. it. I did like it. I agree with you on Capullo. I think Capullo's art is surprisingly underwhelming. Oh, okay. Uh, especially because so much of the pre-launch hype, and you know, it's hype for a reason. You, you shouldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. But so much of the pre-launch hype was like, we are fucking nuts, you guys. Yeah. Right. This is nuts. This book's gonna, it's, you're gonna, you're not even gonna understand what we're doing. It's fucking nuts. And the first issue is relatively restrained and also Capullo's art is, doesn't sell the big moments. Yeah. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, for what it's worth, and I know this is not inside baseball at all, I'm just guessing, I wouldn't be surprised if the two prologues were written after the first issue. I kind of got that sense. I kind of, like, it makes a lot more sense if the shit that was being dropped in there. Because then, then it had, then at least it feel, those moments feel like bigger moments. But in the context well, of the prologues, also, yeah. it, it, the prologues, like, there's a massive disconnect for me between the prologues and the first issue. Well, yeah, absolutely, too. You know, it's like, oh, there's fucking Joker. What's happening with Joker? Oh, shit. And then it's like, Justice League's on fucking Mongol world. Yeah. Exactly. They're not even going to mention everything that happened in the prologues, and you're like, "What?" Yeah, it feels like that, it does feel really off, doesn't weird. it? Yeah, yeah, strangely, yeah, like that's, strangely that's dissonant. Genuinely strange. Yeah, um, I I liked it mostly because it felt like a Justice League comic. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it really it worked for me on that level. It worked for me on the level of like a 1980s Justice League comic. Yeah, where right. it's the familiar characters and they're all fighting together. Right. And in a strange way, it felt more like a Justice League comic than the Justice League comic does. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although a lot of that for me is the my uh, underwhelmedness at, at Hitch's writing. He's writing a fine comic, but it doesn't feel like a Justice League comic to me. Mm, interesting. I, I think uh, what I liked about Metal, and I, I don't know because I haven't read Hitch's Justice League, is part of what's what was fun about metal or would have been if Capullo had committed to it is, is that, is that Snyder gives us kind of a James Bond opening that is basically yeah. a big Justice League comic, yes. you know, it, the, it's the a climax. Comic and, and then it, and the climax is the double page title, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, which does work. Mm-hmm. I like I, that. 
I really like that element of it. In an interesting way, that the Secret Empire. Secret Empires tried to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. That you essentially have a pre-credit sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels increasingly phoned in as mm-hmm. the series went on. Mm-hmm. Oh, was doing that with each issue had like a big yeah. pre-credit yeah. sequence? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, when I say big pre-credit, like the pre-credit sequence for issue 10 is literally one page. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. But you know, but it's like, ooh, yeesh. <laughs> and it, you know, maybe Metal's going to do the same thing, but I hope not, because it, it felt very much like it's the start of the story title. Yeah, um, exactly. I, yeah, I I liked it. I, I worked for me as a Justice League comic. Capullo's art was relatively underwhelming. I was actually surprised how much I liked it compared with. You remember when uh, the Justice League showed up in Batman? Yes, at the start of Endgame, and I was not that that impressed. Right. Right, uh, and so I, I guess I was kind of more impressed because I had lower expectations going in. Mm. I think for me, it just I think what worked was kind of the, uh, and I could be wrong. Is it opens as if Snyder had 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 his like perfectly crafted little Justice League story that he had in his head, and he sacrificed like lopped it all off so that you just get the conclusion of it. And the rest of it all, you know, like you don't really need the rest of it. It kind of was interesting to me. Like, you just wanted like those five pages or something? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's it's a little bit of the, he's like, yeah, this is, you know, his whole idea is like, I'm what's supposed to be the big moment of a Justice League comic is just my opening scene. Like, that's supposed to be cool. And it is fun. It has that thing of like, oh, okay, he's really putting a lot of enthusiasm. He's not just like saving his favorite little well, this was that, my... that's actually that's what worked for me best about the first issue mm-hmm. because that's what lived up to the hype mm-hmm. the this book is nuts because you do start with like the big dramatic moment that would be yeah. like the end of part four right. in someone else's justice League exactly comic. exactly is like you know and also you don't you also quit that scene early yeah well that's it too like, it's like cut mm-hmm. the scene before the showdown with Mongol. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's the, it's the implication of, of course they're going to win the, the Justice League. Right. Yeah. There's something about that that really works for me as well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but it then goes into the mythology of the series, which honestly for me feels too convoluted. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, it, there's, there's a dissonance for me between the Justice League fucking have Voltron and they're gonna kick the bad guy's ass to there's a metal and maybe there's a mysterious island and you know Batman has done something but Batman is not talking and now Batman is running away right and I was like okay but this was like a big loud story to begin with and now it's uh right. I hope you're paying attention through four years of Batman right well or or even just again like you said there's Justice League Voltron and that's big and awesome and dumb and then the rest of it is is uh, is is just weirdly kind of abstract and there is also just a little bit of that idea of like oh no it's the you know the the anti-batman are coming for you or whatever and i'm just i don't know there was a variety of things it's it's funny how much it was snyder classic snyder where he's like yeah guys hold up i bet you all crapped your pants when i broke down that etymology of like wayne wagon right and you're just like oh scott snyder you big old nerd but <laughs> but at the same time i love that like i did too yeah, yeah. no yeah. but like i love his nerdishness about that yeah i do too i do too yeah. i re- no i i genuinely do 
but there is a moment in which, again, A, it doesn't quite follow in the same way as, as what you had, but also there's just, like, it is, it's, it's so dumb and abstract at this point. Maybe it will be awesome, but the whole idea that it's like, oh no, it's dark matter, and we're having to fight well, dark well, matter that, itself, that's the there's thing. a metal like, war. And it's, for, the, for the series to live up to its hype fully, it needs less exposition. It's not even like just it, that it needs less exposition, Graham. It's just abstract. Like the the no, but, fun but, parts but, of it, I think, are the parts that are basically sort of the the DC Legends aspect of it. Like, oh, and here's how we're going to bring in Lady. Here's Lady Blackhawk. Here's how I've reinvented the Challengers. Here's how you know, kind of like with Legends, is like, oh, cool. The Suicide Squad got formed before my very eyes. But, sure, but but I think I honestly think if you took away the the talkiness of the we have the map of the multiverse, what happens if we turn it over and literally just had like the you know the anti Batman or whatever show up and we're like we're from the other side of the multiverse, you get the same point over. Yes, it's much less talky. It's much less talky, exactly. And, and you you basically keep the momentum of that opening scene yeah, going. I agree. I agree. Like the problem is the, the opening. Like the first issue is great. You have the title and you're like, I am on board. Right. And then it's like, the rest of the issue is going to be talking. Yeah. And I get why in the grand scheme it's going to be talking. Well, but although again, after those prologues, yeah. And because those prologues existed, I kind of wish, like again, if they came later, I wish they'd done a big rewrite of that first issue because it is supposed to, again, it's, and even in those prologue issues, which are fun in some cases, like with the Joker tittering and talking about stuff, there's also a little bit of it, isn't it kind of like Scott Snyder's The Happening at this point? You know what I mean? What? You, you know the M. Night Shyamalan, not Shyamalan movie, The Happening, where it's like, it's the end of the world and something's killing them and it turns out to be the plants and the trees have rebelled against humanity and so basically they're fighting wind. Like, so you have these sequences. God, God bless you for thinking I've been paying that much attention to M. Night Shyamalan Right, movies. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it is a shit movie, but it's hilarious how bad it is. And Mark Wahlberg's miscast, but there is a little bit of that thing of like, God bless you. You really thought that people, like people in the movie theater are going to be on the edge of their seat because it's like, oh, holy fuck, the wind. Look out. The wind is coming for you. And let's face it. If you're thinking about it in an abstract concept, yeah, fighting air, like if air was suddenly to turn on us, it would be terrifying. Believe me, as a person who literally almost died thanks to two night, two days of 104 degree, you know, weather, but that's not an exciting story. I mean, don't get me wrong, that if someone allowed me to write a DC event that was just superheroes, like Samantha Sear. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know about verses, but like, just can you, wouldn't it be so awesome to see like Batman, like, you know, and he's, he's dressed as Batman up top, but then he's got his, like his leggings off and he's got his feet like in a bucket of ice. And he's like fanning himself with the edge of his Cape. And he's like, Oh, it's, it's just too hot. It's just, it's just too motherfucking hot. That would be awesome. But yeah, or Superman versus air. Like the, the thing about Do- Doomsday Clock is Jeff Johns is like, okay, it's DC versus Watchmen or is it? But you know, you're going to be like, oh, okay. Whereas like the fact that S- Scott Snyder is sowing the seeds of like, and the only way you're going to be able to beat them is with a bunch of elements not on the elemental table. I'm just like, okay. 
you had me at Wayne and Wagon, but I think you're kind of losing, like you're going a little too far down this road, Scott Snyder. Like the whole idea. What what would be great is listening to this again, like three issues from now, when they've done some just dumb thing. They're like, it's Judge Death, but he's Batman. Right. And you and I are both like, this is fucking awesome. Well, see, that's it. Part of me is like when they're, they keep showing the pictures of, of Batman as Judge Death. And I'm like, like, okay, first off, you guys could have been a little more original in the design. That is a little <laughs> gross. But of course, part of me is like, but yeah, bring that shit on, baby. Like someone was like, yeah, when you Batman plus Joker equals Judge Death, I'm like, all right, I'm on it. I'll try it. Let's see it. Sure, bring it on. That's more exciting to me than the idea that they have to fight metal. You know, like just the idea, like we're fighting. It, uh, it would be great if literally they're like, if these evil Jokers are, is it's a fake out. We're literally fighting metal. Yeah. I mean, they pretty much have said, like, the evil dark matter that's holding the universe together. Is it evil? I'm like, are you high? Like, and there's a little bit in which, in theory, part of the stuff that was fun with Snyder and Capullo is when Capullo is on it, he's you're like, are you high? And he steps up and he's like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm high as hell. Look at this. It's a motherfucking owl and you're going to be frightened the shit of it because it's an owl you know and snyder keeps saying like he's like yeah metal it's gonna be metal it's this is the most metal thing we've ever done and metal woo and you get capullo and he's just like i can finally fucking buy like a new roof because mark miller's stupid as shit idea like got me like tons of money like stupid tons of money do I really need to be fucking drawing Justice League Voltron? What if I kind of half-assed it, you know, and then went out and flew to Florida and just spent, like, just bought my wife a nice dinner, and then we flew back the next day, and it doesn't even touch my new bank balance. Like, I don't know. I mean, who knows what the fuck's going on with Kabulo. But there's just that thing of, like, I'm like... Yeah, metal may not turn out... Like, I I was shocked by how on the first couple of prologue issues I was. I was like, this is going to be great. And I read that first issue of metal, and I'm like, yeah, this this really could go either way, couldn't it? It really could. <laughs> oh, Jeff. I know, I know. Graham, we didn't even talk yeah. about Squadron Supreme, Satan's Soldier, Hookjaw, the Hulk UK archive, the Planet of the Apes archive, the first huh? three issues. the Hulk UK archive? No comment. Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, I totally yeah, bought the whole QK archive. Those are good comics, Jeff. No, they're terrible. Oh, oh what were man. You thinking? I, like, I could have, I, someone who read them the first time around, no. Well, because I was like, mm, this is kind of cheap. I bet if I was, read these, was, these will be terrible. Was this when you were, like, on pain meds? Did you make bad decisions by the person? <laughs> I should be smart and say yes. Graham, I cannot tell you how hilarious the first couple of issues of the Hulk UK archive are. They are. I have to. I fucking read them when I was a kid. <laughs> and even then you were like, these are terrible. I, honest to God, I read them when I was a kid and I remember going, these aren't good at all. What <laughs> What happened to like the old Hulk comics you read, which were like the American reprints? Yeah, exactly. And it's not even like the Hulk TV show. This is terrible. Yeah. I remember really clearly being like four years old and disappointed by it. <laughs> well, let me tell you, Graham. If you were to revisit them as a 50-year-old man, even one on pain meds, you will not have changed your mind. Not, oh, good. Not That's good. Yeah. 
Uh, oh. Yeah, we didn't talk about any of this shit. I didn't get to say that I read Fred Van Lente's novel, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's fabulous. What's the name the, of the book? The Ten Dead Comedians. Ah. It's him doing Agatha Christie for stand-up comics, and if any fucking Hollywood producer hasn't uh, optioned this yet, they're insane. Mm. If mm-hmm. ever a book was meant to be made into a film. Wow. That's, it's, uh... it's ridiculous. It, it's, but if you like, specifically if you like, and then there were none, the Agatha Christie novel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you'd like it. Cause it's literally, and then there were none with stand-up comedians. The, which could be great. As someone who spent some years in the back of my head trying to figure out a way to plot, um, uh, shit. What's it called? What's the Michael Caine movie, uh, done? Is it Death Trap with comedians? Yeah, yeah I, I know the one you're talking about. Uh, Sleuth. Maybe it's Sleuth with comedians. Anyway, same Wait. sort of thing. What's the cat yeah, and mouse I, game? There's two, there's two of them that are very similar, right? It, no, there is a film called Death Trap. Am I imagining that? No, no, you're totally right. But Death Trap's a different one, but it's by the same guy. Like, and I forget Death Trap is 82 11. and stars Michael Caine. Right. And Christopher Reeves. This is the one I was thinking about. Yeah. Broadway playwright puts murder in his plan to take credit for a student's play. Exactly. Exactly. That's the, one, that's the one you're thinking about? Yes. Yes. And, but also, um, Ira Levin, who is, who is like, he's awesome because he also did Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives. So he is just flat out fucking awesome. Uh, also did, um, Shit, maybe it's not the. What's the one that got remade with Ken Branagh and again Michael Caine? Um, I don't think it was Death Trap. It's Sleuth, wasn't it? Sleuth, Sleuth is Michael Caine as well, right? Sleuth, Michael Caine, and Lawrence Olivier. Apparently. Yeah, that's the one exactly. And and same same sort of idea, although it's Anthony Schaefer apparently. So, um, but yeah, the whole like cat and mouse game between two types and entertainments involved. Anyway, 10 Dead Comedians. But no, it, yeah, you, you might enjoy it in that case if you've been yeah. trying to break a similar story. Um, it, it's a very fast read. I read it when I was away last weekend. Hmm. But it, it's 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 very... I, I was literally... Go, do you ever read two books at the same time and they're very different but you sort of pinball between the two? A little bit. Although usually... I'm reading that and mm-hmm. the, the, the new town has a quotes book about Obama's legacy. Wow. So it's like, you know, oh, ha, ha, people are dying horrifically. And then in the second year, Robin's the real. Well, listen, I want to thank you. Actually, a million years ago, you recommended that oral history of Twin Peaks. And, um, yeah, it's, that really was a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. And I ended up, uh, buying it back then and just read it this week in preparation for the final episode of Twin Peaks. Because I also read this, bought the secret history of Twin Peaks and started reading that and was kind of not so into it. So, and that's the Mark Frost written book that's like in universe, right? Yes, exactly. And, and lays a certain amount of groundwork for this series as well. But when I started going through it, I was kind of like, eh, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of this sort of approach so so instead it was just the oral history stuff and the oral history stuff is great because of course it's written back when no one thinks that it's coming back and so they're talking about various things that they wish had happened or what they would have done or why things turned out the way that they did and and me being like oh man this is really interesting so and for people listening along it really is just called the oral history of twin peaks right I think so. It might be called something goofy like Reflections, comma, the oral history of Twin Peaks, but 
it's it's really close to that. And, and like I said, a really good, decent read. And it, yeah, it's exactly what it's called, Reflections in Oral History of Twin Peaks. Good. I'm not so old. It's like, I can't remember Christopher Hastings' name, but I can remember the name of this book that I just But you were so close. You go, Chris Sabella. Like, they're both Chris's who write comics who are relatively recent you're, writers. You're, you're very generous. You're, you're fine. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, the Reflections came out in 2014. So it, it's not. It's also not so old that it feels completely out of date, but it's old enough that there was no revival happening when it was written. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's pretty great. Also great is this men drawstring waist Twin Peaks owl cave map shorts for men that, uh, yeah, I, cause I went on to, I went on to Amazon and I just wrote oral history of Twin Peaks and people are like, well, yeah. And the men drawstring waist Twin Peaks owl cave map shorts for men. I mean, you literally just feel like the person is like throwing uh, nouns at you, and then somehow right? it comes together. Yeah, so so I know what I'm getting you as a little um, present. I've only when I'm seen I've only to... seen the first two episodes of the new series. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to see more unless they suddenly put them on Netflix or Hulu, which I really hope to do. Please, Showtime, put them on Netflix or Hulu. Oh man, I don't think uh, so. I think I would not be surprised if it shows up on Hulu like after a year or so. Yeah, maybe maybe a year or two years, but I think Showtime's going to try and do their best because I think they've lost their motherfucking shirts on it. They're going to do their best to try and draw new subscribers to the like, hey, we've got the whole thing, you know. And frankly, I think, well, we'll see if it works or not. All I know, Graham, is is that you're going to look mighty good in these uh, men drawstring waist Twin Peaks Owl Cave map shorts for men. Thank God. Yeah. I was wondering when I was going to get new drawstring shorts for men. Yes, indeed. For men. <laughs> well, that's because there's the Lady Slim Twin Peaks Owl Cave map beach short trim swim trunks. These people have really got to learn when to stop. Lady Slim Twin Peaks Owl Cave Map Beach Shorts Swim Trunks. Oh, no, that's, that's not, that's literally just putting words together. And, and I don't think you would look as good in those, frankly. Although maybe, maybe I should get one of each for when I come up and see you and then we will see. Okay. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> um, should we wrap it up? Yeah, I, I think like, so. I feel like we're beginning to get goofy. Ladies, gentlemen. People of whatever gender you wish to be, mm. we're going to be back in a week or maybe slightly, slightly off a week. Yeah. Because Jeff, as we've said multiple times in this episode, is coming to Portland next week. That's right. We're going to record an episode in person together, right. yeah. having that awkward moment where we can see each other and we try and not like make it weird because we're recording a podcast <laughs> while in the same room. <laughs> Happens every single time. Every single time. Does it? I feel if it does, it that moment passes a lot quicker for me. Maybe maybe it's more awkward for you, but um. Well, do you remember the last time we did it? It was um in the basement of someone else's house. Well, see, and at that point, that had nothing to do with us. That was entirely fucking weird on its own. Like at that point, on so I'm many like, levels. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why I was like, yeah, I think the fact that we did that one and that one was really weird, but it had nothing to do with, yeah, I think, I think we're getting that was especially weird. I don't know if you remember this or not. It was especially weird because we were going out for dinner afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I, I think, which is why I was like, I think we should go get dinner first before we record for this one. 
Although, as long we should talk about this off air, but I'm sort of confused <laughs> as to like. Part of me is like, technically, it should be a Baxter building next week, and so yeah, part and it of really, is, if it really shouldn't, like, yeah. it, if we're doing it in person, it really shouldn't be a Baxter building. I, I feel the same. I I totally feel the same. So okay, I'm glad you you're on. Oh, people. We're going to be back next week. It's going to be a weird episode. Hey, you know what you should do? You should all send us fucking questions. What? They should send us questions. What? We should answer questions. Come on. No. No, Graham, we're going to be up. We're just coming out of Rose City Comic Con. I figured part of the whole thing is is we're going to be like, wow, Rose City Comic Con. Who was expecting, you know, Jay Edden to hit Jeff Parker with an enormous fish? You know, that kind of thing. Right? Jay, if you're listening, you have like a week to make this happen. <laughs> Get that fish ready. <laughs> Fine, we won't do questions, but we should we should do a question and answer. Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely uh, over yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So But people Listen. save us save us, spare us, not this time. We'll let you know. We'll let you know. We promise. Listeners. I'm gonna say it now. We are all over the fucking internet. In some of those places, we're more together than we are here. Maybe those places include the show notes, which will be at waitwhatpodcasts.com. Definitely won't be the Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. Uh, it may be the Twitter, at waitwhatpodcast. It's definitely going to be Jeff Lester's Twitter, at lazybastard, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. It is probably not going to be my Twitter, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Did I add a few too many EMs there? No, I, I think, feel like I might have. G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Yeah. Is it? I don't know what I said before. Maybe I said too many. Mm-hmm. We're recording this slightly out of sync from normal. I think it's really gone to my head. I don't think we should ever do a Sunday afternoon podcast ever again. <laughs> we are a Patreon supporter podcast, which means Jeff is going to spring into action right now. I, Jeff, spring. Go, now. Yeah, with panther-like grace, I'm going to say thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone who listens to us. I have to say uh, this is this is um, probably not germane to the, the point that I'm making here. But recently, I was stuck in a car that I did not want to leave because the car had air conditioning, uh, and my wife was running an errand, and I didn't want to turn off the car, cause, and I didn't want to step outside of the car. But I was also kind of bored. And uh, I did a thing that I'm actually ashamed to admit it, but I did, which is I opened up our, um, on the phone, I opened up our reviews page on iTunes, and I looked through uh, all the wonderful things that people have said, and even some of their, it, in, there's one or two cases where a few people have said less than wonderful things. But the fact of the matter is, I feel incredibly fortunate that we have incredibly generous kind and intelligent listeners who seem to appreciate what we do which is a thing that I have to keep in mind because there's times where I think my default tends to be to not appreciate the things that I myself actually do Uh, but thanks to your ongoing uh, support through things like iTunes, through things like dropping us a note or sending us things on Twitter, or very super, especially the super kind people on Patreon who appreciate what we do enough to throw us a, a little bit of dosh um, is incredibly inspiring. It inspired us to do the Baxter Building podcast, which exists entirely as a stretch goal available on our Patreon. And... Um, 
we're thankful to everyone who listens to us and supports us. I, I definitely want to give a shout out to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're especially grateful for their continuing support of this podcast and for their continuing support of this fragile galactic uh, celestial cosmic thing. <laughs> that we exist. I'm like, I'm really gonna yeah, have fun. to look up Spino. Well I really I, did. You know, I was like, thinking I was falling apart and then not happening. I was so good up until the end. I'm like, what the fuck is that thing called? Like, there's a thing that our, that the Milky Way is. And I'm like, is it a spiral? Is it a, I mean, I know it's a galaxy, but I thought there was a kind of, aren't we part of a offshoot of a rim of a, and then that's it. It was totally like between the heat the fact that um, I miss my traveler guidebooks like nobody's business, and the fact that I really don't keep up as much on the astronomy as I should. I, I totally like flatlined on that. But the gratitude, listeners, that <laughs> is real. Yeah. Graham? <laughs> as you can tell, it's time to stop this podcast. <laughs> as always. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with apparently stories of Jeff being hit around the head with a fish. Who knows if that's actually going to happen or not? It's going to happen. I- it's not. <laughs> I felt like I'm like I know what Graham wants me to say here. So, <laughs> people, thank you very much for listening. I am going to get a better headset for the future. Jeff already has a better headset. Everything's going to be good from now on. Thank you for keeping me strong. And more importantly, bye!